Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 90 of Through the Years, the podcast reviews for Ring of Honor, show by show, from the beginning. I'm Trevor Dame. The other voice you will hear, as always, is Matt Feuerstein. And it is great, Matt, that starting in 2006, the the, the first episode we're going to do of a million episodes, it's probably going to take us two years to cover 2006, I almost flubbed the intro line of the podcast that I do every single episode. So, off to a great start. I, I hope that does not portend... No, it will not portend poorly, because... uh this is going to be a great episode. I've been really looking forward to this episode. Yeah, I know this is you've uh, you've been like rubbing your hands together, licking your chops. I've been watching you on the secret camera that I have installed in your apartment. <laughs> Love those wigs were just for you. Yeah. And that, that other thing I was doing also was just for you. Love watching you do that. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, this is going to be a big one. It's yeah, 2006. Holy hell, we're there. Um, We'll see if it lives up to the hype. I feel like it's off to a good start already, and I'm excited to do this episode. And oh man, yeah. So there's a lot. So we'll I'll quickly just do the same plug we always do, which is just a reminder. There's three ways to listen to us. You've clearly found one of them through the years. Our regular feed that can be on any podcast thing. That's just our show. If you want to listen to us on a podcast network full of other shows where it's hard to find our archives, but you also get a bunch of other stuff every week instead of just us coming through a drip every two to three weeks, that's the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network. And we are on YouTube where a couple of nice people give us very nice comments and a very small fraction of our total listeners listen to it. But those that do from the monthly things listen to it a lot. So, uh, yeah, that's that. Um, Matt, there's a lot to talk about on this show, but before that, there's actually a bunch of news that happened between the two shows, and that doesn't always happen, but there's some interesting and varied things this time. Um, first thing, just a little bit of house cleaning from the last episode, our 2005 year end. Uh, there was a little bit of PW Torch stuff I didn't mention, and I mostly edited out the Torch stuff because I just tried to keep in the interesting stuff, but I thought this was oh, a snap. funny and- <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just very plain. Guess what? Samoa Joe did well. But I thought there was a couple cute little things I picked up following the issues that came out in January 2006 of The Torch. The first was uh, The Torch did a reader draft where they asked the readers, like, if you were going to draft a roster after the end of 2005 of wrestlers, who would you uh, who would you pick? And Samoa Joe finished first, far and away first. Um, for those curious, AJ Styles second, Chris Benoit third, Shawn Michaels fourth, Kurt Angle five. But um, this is uh, sometimes we've noticed like Wade Keller gets adorably like super into things very quickly. Sometimes when he's into things, like almost to the point of hyperbole or hyperbole. And uh, this was a uh, this is what he wrote about Samoa Joe. I thought this was going a little too far, and I'm a huge Samoa Joe fan. Wade wrote. Joe represents a no-nonsense style that is as remarkable, compelling, and original as Hulkamania, Austin 316, and the rise and incredible falls of Mick Foley during their breakthrough years. Um, In an era where MMA is reaching unprecedented popularity in the U.S., Joe represents a realism and toughness that is like nothing wrestling fans have seen over the past two generations. I mean, (laughs) that's a lot. I mean, I, I love Samoa Joe. We just... I mean, we gave him our match of the year for 2005. We gave him our wrestler of the year for 2004. That's a, that's a lot. It's I wonder, I wonder him. if even Samoa Joe would be like, huh, what? <laughs> uh, even, yeah. uh, even if I was confident, which is, I'm definitely not, I'd be like, maybe slow down comparing me to Hulkamania and Austin 316, like the two biggest things that have happened in wrestling in like our lifetimes. But 
And then this always continues one of my favorite through the years little storyline slash memes. And this is from a column Bruce Mitchell wrote, wrote in the torch for he did a thing which he sometimes did his New Year's resolutions that were half joking, half serious. And one he wrote was, I promise to do a full length column this year on the Ring of Honor promotion, which has done what the legendary ECW promotion was never able to do. Become a consistently self-sustaining independent business, even if it involves me getting up off my ass and traveling to see a wrestling show. I just love that. We, I always point out so often how, you know, in the early years of Ring of Honor, they would constantly, everyone in the torch and the observer would say, you know, Ring of Honor's breaks even, you know, it's completely self-sustaining. And then when the Feinstein scandal came out, you know, the observer report, oh, um, they've lost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And now immediately, like a year later, they're right back to being like, oh, they're, they're self-sustaining, you know, Bruce saying they've done what ECW has never done, where I believe history is borne out. Even Carrie Silk has said, like, they were never self-sustaining. They were sustained by people that were willing to dump a lot of money into the promotion. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, they were just what all the other right, like indie wrestling companies that lasted a while were, which is just they were willing to keep it run, running, even as they did not make money. Um, but, you know, maybe they lost less money during this era, I guess. Yeah, oh, that, I, that, I that definitely seemed, that sounds That sounds likely. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's funny that, you know, these... It's interesting that these, you know, supposedly, um, you know, intrepid, um, you know, detailed investigative-ish reporter types really just took those comments at face value without ever asking to see any proof. Um, it's interesting. I, I, and they just, you know, like, and they just reported it as stated. I, I don't know why they did that. I mean, I guess it doesn't really matter, but, you know, if you want to be accurate, it, it doesn't sound like it was accurate to say that. Um, for the record, I don't think that Bruce Mitchell ever traveled to a Ring of Honor show in 2006, <laughs> but I guess we'll uh, have to keep checking to see if I'm misremembering that. But, um, yeah, and I, I think it's more damning now because in the first few years when the Observer and Torch did it, you know, it's still probably not great to always take anything anyone in wrestling says at face value, but, like, after 2004, when it came out that they had clearly been deceived, you know, where after years of the first two or three years of saying, oh, they break even, they break even, then, then be told... Oh, they've Carrie Silken and Rob Feinstein are both claiming to have lost six figure losses in a short time. Like you would think that now in late 2005, even though this was like probably one of the hotter times for Ring of Honor in terms of DVD sales with the Joe versus Kobashi. And apparently that extended to just everything was selling well for a while because probably people were like, Hey, I'll buy this. I'll buy a couple others too. Like at that point, once I've been fooled once, it's the old fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice. Like, Shame on me. I feel like you should should have been a little more skeptical at this point, but yeah, they I mean, weren't. and I've mentioned this before on the show. How many promotions, wrestling, American wrestling promotions, in the post WWF expansion era, actually had profitable years? You know, other than WWE. I mean, I know WCW did for a few years. Um, has there been any others? Um, I, I I actually am not sure. I. I it doesn't sound like AEW is currently profitable um, yet, or, you know, hopefully it will be at some point. But, like, yeah, have there been any that you can think of off the top of your head? I'm not sure, but especially in the world of independent wrestling, I think, like, people sometimes don't realize just how most independent wrestling promotions are just labors of love where they are money sinks for people that are making money elsewhere or they're kind of living hand-to-mouth. Like, you know, people go, oh, successful indies, like, 
even successful quote unquote indies are just successful usually in the sense that I, and from what I understand that like they're losing less, like they're losing a small enough amounts that like they can write it off. Right. Like, <laughs> like know? I, like I don't know, like obviously PWG has a very different business stop model than, than our wasted in that like, it runs like currently at least that it runs way fewer shows and and you know it's 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 kind of boutiquey they they don't really take advantage of the latest technology because they don't stream at all you know I don't know for all I know maybe they somehow make money at what they're doing I I don't know but like there's no there's there's nothing that's known to be like the profitable indie or non indie by the way I'm not just talking about indie wrestling like I'm talking about any American professional wrestling company besides WWE. I'm, I'm honestly like I'm, I might just be ignorant. Like I'm, I'm, I'm. I'll happily admit that. Like I'm just, I'm genuinely curious if there are indie press, if or if there are wrestling promotions in America that have had profitable years since like besides WWE since like I don't know the late '80s. Obviously, well, I, WCW not included for those couple years. Yeah, I think they said. I think Dave Meltzer. He said this years ago. So who knows? Now they're running obviously on a much lower budget. But like, I think Dave Meltzer once said Impact as TNA made like a profit one year in their history that was due to that video game they had that came out that one year and that was probably near the height of their popularity gotcha. and so, so in a way they're kind of a reverse AEW because everyone's like oh AEW would probably be making a little bit of profit now except they've sunk a lot of money apparently into this video game that's now being revealed as having like this troubled over budget history where TNA's the opposite where it's like the video game was like the one thing that kind of gave them a in the black year apparently that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, the, the wrestling now, it's, it's so different in that the revenue comes from, like, different places than it ever would have in, like, the, you know, in the classic, you know, territory days or whatever. They're, you know, du- even WWE, right? They make their money not from, you know, live events and pay-per-views, but they make it from their, you know, their, you know, prepaid sold TV, de- uh, TV deals and, and Saudi Arabia deal and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, next, Matt, a little bit, I normally do not do FIP news, but it does get referenced a lot on this show. And it was, in some ways, this might be one of the biggest FIP shows ever enough that I actually got a mention in uh, like a bit of a rep in the observer. So I thought I'd mention it. Um, and then ask you a question after, um, ring of honor, sister promotion. This is Dave Meltzer, obviously writing FIP drew its biggest crowd to date on January 7th in crystal river, Florida with a sellout of 450 fans. Gay Sapolsky also books FIP and tries out a lot of new talent that eventually comes to Ring of Honor. Main event was Roderick Strong pinning Jack Evans in what was apparently a hell of a match. It was said to be the best match of Evans' career, and while Strong has been in great matches before, he was usually in there with an experienced top guy, and this was his best match where he was the one leading it. The FIP crowds, which are small-town fans as opposed to major market fans, are very different from Ring of Honor in that Ring of Honor, they react to the match, and at FIP, they react to face versus heel. The, this match, the crowd was quiet at the beginning, but after a handspring elbow by Evans that Strong caught in a torture rack and then dropped Evans into double knees, there was a gasp, and then they reacted big to the moves. And so, yeah, apparently, like, I was going to ask Matt, like, I've seen bits and pieces of FIP, but it was one of those things where my interest wasn't always that high, and it was also one of those things where, quite honestly, I just didn't have the money or time at that stage of my life to, like, it was barely, I was barely able to handle like keeping up with Ring of Honor. But like, I remember the one DVD I was really tempted I never got was they literally ended up just calling the show, I believe, like Strong versus Evans. They gave it like the Joe versus Kobashi, Joe versus Punk treatment, and they really hyped it. But I don't think I've ever seen this match. 
Matt, so, oh, so, uh, oh, so, uh, you're curious if, if I've seen the match? Um, yeah, have you seen the match? I was just going to ask. Yeah, yeah, I, I feel like I did. I don't, I honestly, and I feel bad saying it, I don't have a super strong memory of it, but there were a couple of FIP shows that I bought, and I think that was one of them. And, you know, I remember thinking it was good. I, I, the atmosphere could be tough for me because it wasn't like an ROH atmosphere, you know, it was like, you know, they, they could be quiet some of the time, then not, you yeah. know, not really get the style they were going for. But yeah, no, it, it does seem like it was a, it was a breakthrough for Jack Evans in terms of singles matches. And Jack Evans, I think a lot of his best singles matches, even in ROH were against Roderick Strong. Um, definitely, uh, a couple of years later during the whole, you know, no remorse core era, they had some really good matches together. I remember that. I guess it was one year after this, now that I think about it, cause we're already in 2006. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to listen to the write up about FIP because it's so clear, like he's just saying what Gabe told him, right? Like, yeah. like who else was going to give him that info? Like this was the best singles match of Jack Evans' career, and the fans react to Babyface versus Heel. Like, like that's literally. I'm sure that's just Gabe telling him that, right? Like, there's yeah, there's no one else. Um, as far as FIP, it's interesting because obviously I did buy a couple of FIP DVDs because ROH was hyping it so much. And I'm the sort of person that, like, when I get really into something, I'll drink the Kool-Aid a little bit. Like, mm-hmm. when when I was a kid and was super into WWF, I bought the WBF pay-per-view in 1992. Oh, my God. Well, my, my dad let me actually buy that. It was weird to watch because I'm not into <laughs> bodybuilding. But I did watch it, and I think I probably liked it. I um, wow. But I was, but no, I'm not. I'm not trying to compare FIP to WBF. It was wrestling, <laughs> and it was good. But I'm just saying, like. You know, like it, that's the sort of thing. If 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 I'm into what you're doing and you sell me something hard enough, I'll probably give it a shot. And what I saw of FIP, I didn't dislike it. It was just like you said, like there's just only so much money and so much time that you have. Yeah. And there was better stuff to buy. Like I, but I appreciated how much Gabe was putting his energy into it at this point and was really trying to make it happen. I don't know if it ever really quite happened the way he wanted it to. Uh. I just got to say, either you have way better or way worse parents than mine, depending on how you want to look at it. Because I had to, like, beg my parents to buy me the occasional WrestleMania. Your parents bought you the WBF paper. Yeah, no, my dad, he definitely indulged my wrestling habit. I mean, <laughs> I, I I didn't buy a ton of stuff as a kid, but the wrestling pay-per-views, yes. That was, uh, that was one that it was, yeah, two, yeah, I would say... Generous, but probably not very, um, not very thoughtful in terms of like what it would end up doing to me as a person to buy all these wrestling pay per views. The fact that like I'm 38 and doing this. <laughs> thank you, Mr. Forestina. Matt's loss is my gain. So thank you for ruining him by indulging his horrible habit. But, um, we'll continuing to indulge that habit. Uh, the Observer uh, TNA section, uh, th- this is a long bit, and I I kind of want to include it just it, – it's tangentially related to Ring of Honor, although by the end you'll see where the real connection is. But I thought this was just a, kind of a fascinating moment in Samoa Joe's career, and it kind of also sheds some light on probably like the economics of the pay scale of wrestling at this time, especially when you consider that a lot of wrestlers would end up choosing TNA over Ring of Honor. So – this time in the in kind of the wrestling timeline that we're in now in the podcast, early 2006, this is when uh, Sting signed to TNA, which was a big deal at the time. It was a big money deal. Apparently, uh, Spike, I think, actually helped them pay for Sting, although I don't think people knew at th- that time. But 
a lot of wrestlers in TNA were not making much money at this point, and many of them were unhappy that all of a sudden this this company that was crying poor found a lot of money for Sting, and Samoa Joe was chief among them. So we will go to the Observer. Um, Dave writes, there was another aspect to the Sting sign that nobody thought of, and this was the effect on morale. You've got a bunch of guys working their asses off in the ring, making $300 to $750 per TV show they appear on. The top guys, which mean the former WWE guys and name guys from the past, along with America's Most Wanted, AJ Styles, and maybe Christopher Daniels or one or two others, are the only ones who make $1,000 or more a show. All accepted their pay with the idea that the company doesn't have much money. Everyone that asked about raises in the last six months was told, and rightfully so because the company was burning through money at a fast rate, that the company couldn't afford it. But when Sting was signed to a contract in the $500,000 range for the year, uh, Dave writes in parenthesis, I don't know that is the exact number, but it was confirmed with people who know the exact number that the figure is, quote, very close. Which, by the way, pause there. If you're talking to Dave and you know the exact number, and you, like, just tell them the exact number that if you're already going to tell them it's very close. Like, why be coy at that point? Either don't say anything or just tell them the number. But either way, moving on, Dave continues, as you can imagine, everyone suddenly felt underpaid in TNA. In particular, this relates to Samoa Joe. I don't know what Samoa Joe is getting, but it's probably either $500 or $750 per shot. These numbers are not confirmed, but others believe the race he's asking for is from $750 per shot to $1,250 per shot. Although others have said Joe is making the same as some of the enhancement talent, so it could still be $500 and asking for $1,000. Joe was unhappy himself when he found out what Kevin Nash was being paid when Nash was brought back in for Bound for Glory and the early Spike TV shows, believed to be $5,000 per show. In TNA, wrestlers are paid per TV appearance, so if you appear in some form on two shows at a taping, you are paid for two shows, and the full-timers are usually guaranteed 40 shows per year, which is why the booking committee is under so much pressure to book most of the names on most of the shows, which leads to the nine-match pay-per-views with lots of multiple-man matches, as well as the breakneck pace of the TV. As a comparison, the guys like Kip Janes, Jeff Hardy, and Sean Waltman, when they were in, were getting paid $2,000 per shot. Joe's had the matches he's had, is realistically the most valuable star in the company right now, although many are in denial of that. And imagine what he would think if they hold fast and don't bump him up. He is hardly alone in this thinking, although he's the one of several wrestlers in the company who has he's one of several wrestlers in the company have pointed to because he's the one who is obviously underpaid. Also, WWE officials are said to believe they can get Joe at any time legally because of a TNA contract breach. It is believed the grounds they think they can break his contract on were because he was not paid for the episodes of Impact where they did vignettes on him, building to his debut, which is debatable, I'd guess. But where they seem to have a stronger case is Joe not getting paid for the episode of Impact where he physically did appear late in the show and attacked AJ Styles prior to their Turning Point match last week. So even though the company is still running in debt, and that fact kept people unhappy but pacified when nobody was getting raises. It seems like nearly everyone of any name value wants a, wants a raise and wants a raise. Those who have been with the company for the long period of time are feeling like the company will cut any corners with them. Um, Joe is said to be asking to be paid at the same level as Daniels and was told that Daniels has been in the company from the start and so they balked on it. When Joe came at the low starting figure – he said from the start he would take the figure, but at the five-month mark, if he had proved to management he was worth more than he came in for, he wanted to be negotiated up to the rate com com 
commensurate with the level he was at in the company at that time, which is now. The reason Brian Gerwitz was at the Ring of Honor show several weeks back was because Joe invited him to the show just to kind of get the word back that he is willing to leave if he doesn't get what he wants. There is a reaction from several wrestlers now that the company is cutting corners with its homegrown talent, but is paying far more for to get anyone WWE has just cut. Of course, there's another reality in that he could likely get more money from WWE now, but in TNA, Ring of Honor, and the Indies, he can be on top. While in WWE, he'll be put in the position at the start to both not get over and people will try and quote-unquote prove he's not really a good worker. He's young enough where he may choose having more fun, but when his body starts hurting, the money starts becoming a lot more enticing. So, yeah, that's a lot, but I, I think it's interesting because I do think we talked about a few episodes ago, which is a brief mention, that Brian Gerwitz was at a show. It's funny because I kind of forgot some of this, Matt. Like, the narrative was always Joe, like, he would never never had a shot with WWE. Like, they were never that interested in him. And it seems like they probably weren't that interested in him even then, but Joe was certainly trying to make TNA think that – um. That they could be really interested. Like, uh, I'll just have a little quote from the torch. Wade writes, um, it doesn't hurt Joe's bargaining power that he is well known and liked by WWE road agent Ricky Steamboat and Mick Foley. He also has made other contacts in WWE and now key people in WWE management have taken note of his reputation. So, um, Wade also wrote, and WWE would be glad to steal Joe both for the message it would send to fans and the blow it'd be to TNA. So, Again, I have no idea if WWE – like, do you think WWE was really interested? Because let's face it, they could have really had Joe probably if they wanted him. Or is just Joe, who we know – you know, he did torch talks with Wade. Like, is just Joe putting out the word every way he can? Like, TNA, you better start taking me seriously because I could walk, even if maybe he didn't have the leverage. He was quite presenting. Well, Dave – Meltzer, what you just read, he reported that WWE has this whole thing about that they breached Joe's contract. So if they, if that's WWE saying that, that means that they were thinking enough about Joe's contract and what, how TNA was using him and how they could have breached it. So that makes it sound like they were at least that degree of interested in him. Um, I think it is true that he probably would have been screwed over if he had gone. Um, in some ways. Um, and it is also true that, you know, as he got beaten up, the money probably did seem more enticing. So I guess that all kind of panned out. But yeah, it's interesting to think about. It's also interesting to hear that story and kind of, you know, think of the parallels to what we've heard recently, uh, in 2022 about AEW with, uh, MJF. I don't know if you've, uh, you thought about yeah. that comparison when you read that. Uh, I didn't think about that comparison now, but I was even thinking about just, Sasha Banks and stuff like, you know, yeah. there's a lot of, you know, maybe, you know, not as dramatic as that, but, you know, there are different power plays that happen, I imagine, behind the scenes all the time, including ones for everyone we hear. There's probably a lot we don't hear about. This one was playing out in the public a bit more probably because it behooved one side to kind of get the public opinion for them. But, like, yeah, like, I, I sometimes I think people act like wrestlers being unhappy with their station or their pay is – more rare than it probably really is. Yeah, I mean, that's any industry where you have, like, you know, talent that is very confident and, you know, I mean, wrestling does have a tendency to value the old stars. You know, I think TNA, yeah. as much as any company, right, um, yeah. did that, especially in the in the 2000s and, you know, early, early 2010s. Um, but, like, 
you know, so so it makes sense for young up and coming stars to be like, hey, wait a minute, like I'm valuable too, um, and possibly more valuable. And I think Dave Meltzer was right in his reporting that Joe was the hottest thing TNA had going at the beginning of 2006. I certainly think he was. Yeah, like he definitely had an argument that I should be paid as much as Kip James. Like, no yes. offense to him. But like, well, the idea that they said he might be paid as much as certain enhancement talent, it's like, that's insane. He's your, like, your hottest thing. And, and I think that also shows something that we, we've also talked about before, which was just how underappreciated Joe was in, like, 2004 and even into 2005. Because we also, I think, mentioned once how, like, New Japan gave Joe an offer in 2005, which was, like, a dream of Joe's. And he was obviously training at their U.S. dojo. But then it was such a lowball offer. Joe actually was so insulted. He was like, I would have come but not for, like this is an insulting offer. And so clearly like even TNA, even though Joe was like the hot hottest indie name when he signed with TNA, even there clearly they signed him for the initial, I I mean, I think Joe got, did get a raise out of this and ended up making some good, decent money in TNA. But like, even as the hot name in ring of honor, like even then TNA apparently started him off at like the base salary at first. Yeah. I guess there's this attitude of like, Hey, we're giving you the opportunity to get this TV exposure. So you owe us if anything, which is obviously ridiculous, but yeah, I'm sure that was part of the mentality. Uh, and that brings us to hell freezes over, which took place January 14th, 2006 at the Philadelphia or the Pennsylvania national guard armory in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania from a reported crowd of 825 fans. So a lot to go into even on this. The first thing that's really notable, Matt, this drew more by only 25 people, but according to the observer, this drew more than Unforgettable, which was Kento Kobashi's appearance in Philadelphia. So yeah, I, I was so I was at the show. I was I was not at the Kobashi show in Philly. I was at the one in New York. Um, but the last Philly show I went to was, and the only other Philly show I had been to at this point was the Homecoming in July of 2005, and that show had a pretty crummy atmosphere. I felt. And this was night and day. Like I went there, it's like, oh, this this place is is pretty full, you know, pretty big crowd comparatively. They're much more enthusiastic and excited. It's like I was very down on Philly as like an ROH venue at that point. But I feel like this was just like a whole nother level. Like I was like, man, you know, because before this show, I didn't realize how over CZW was. And when I got there, I was like, oh wow, CZW is over. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, and we'll get to that story in just a sec. But even um, like that that other show you mentioned in Philly, I, I, what what people might not know about this is, from all accounts, like behind the scenes, Gabe was considering um not stopping running in Philly at least for a while, like um, and which is wild when you think that Philly was Ring of Honor's home market to be, it was their original market, and it had fallen to the point where they were like, maybe we just need to stop running here. And that show you talked about, the I believe that was uh the Homecoming with a uh, Christopher Daniels and CM Punk, you know that was a match that was teased in a way for years in Ring of Honor, and it was during the really hot summer of Punk storyline. And I looked it back up again. That show in Philly only drew 550 people. And so, yeah, I mean, and, and, and it was not a very, very enthusiastic crowd. I will say this though, as far as Gabe giving up on Philly, he, he did already have planned the 100th show because they announced it on this show when I was there. And they also announced the main event of Loki versus Brian Danielson versus Christopher Daniels, which never happened for reasons that we will discuss plenty over the next few episodes. Yeah. So I guess we should talk about this. What show was 
a double shot basically with CZW. They ran the same city in the same day, and there's a big a bunch of uh, kerfuffle about that. We'll start with this one observer quote. Dave tracked this week by week for a while. So uh, Dave wrote, there's a lot of controversy revolving regarding January 14th, where three shows are scheduled in Philadelphia. Frank Talent, Matt, our old friend Frank Talent is back um, in POG form. No, uh, Frank Talent of the Pennsylvania State Athletic Commission on his boxing and wrestling radio show said there is a courtesy rule and that the commission wouldn't allow two shows to go head-to-head within the same city limits. He said because of that, the Pro Wrestling Unplugged show with Jake Roberts versus The Sandman would be at 2.30 p.m. on January 14th. The CCW show would run an evening show that night with a no-rope barbed wire death match. Apparently, the commission changed its policy regarding barbed wire once they allowed WWE and Hardcore Homecoming to use barbed wire. He said the Ring of Honor situation isn't clear, but he said they will have to run on January 15th. This is a mess because January 15th would mean the Ring of Honor would have to go head-to-head with a TNA pay-per-view, which means most of its most well-known names wouldn't be available. Gabe Sapolsky has said that they are not moving the show to January 15th. So I love that Frank Talent is saying on the radio, yeah, Ring of Honor's going to have to move, and then Gabe telling the observer like we are not i don't care what frank talent says like we're not doing that and this continued because then the observer like in another week goes dave writes ring of honor and ccw have worked out a deal for january 14th both companies along with the third promotion pwu were all running philadelphia Ring of Honor got CZW to move its show to 3.30 p.m. And in exchange, Ring of Honor champ Brian Danielson will face Chris Hero on the CZW show. CZW did its seventh annual Cage of Death show before a full house of 1,100 people at the ECW arena in Philadelphia. So first off, like, I think that goes to Matt, you saying how um, you didn't realize till you went to the show like how big CZW was. I mean, that dwarfs everything that towards most shows where Ring of Honor was saying granted this cage of death was CZW's biggest annual show of the year but like for indie US wrestling 1100 people in any market was really good I was shocked to see how that big number that was well also at the time so so CZW like yeah it was their biggest show of the year but weren't they pretty much just running that building and doing it every month I think they were saying like CZW was running Philly the same Saturday Every month, yeah. So it was like a once. In fact, there was a lot of controversy apparently among CZW fans feeling like, why did Ring of Honor of all the weeks, when they know CZW runs the same Saturday every month, book their Philly date against CZW? And I guess on the Ring of Honor side, they thought their argument was like, this was the only date we could get for this time month. And, you know, it kind of created this back and forth. But apparently Gabe has said on Shooter Reviews that it was actually a then-CZW booker Mike Burns reached out to Gabe and was like, how about we compromise and I, you know, we'll, we'll move to the afternoon. You can run the evening and we'll kind of make it this double shot and we'll shoot. We can shoot an angle, you know, and then we'll get into more of the reasons why Gabe had this idea to book Chris Hero and Brian Danielson for the main event. But the idea of we can book a uh, an angle on the CZW show, which we will talk about in a second, and then that can kind of funnel fans to CZW, I mean, to Ring of Honor for that night, which clearly did. Because, I mean, again, this drew more than Punk. This drew more than Kobashi. Um, we go to the Observer one more time. 
Dave writes, here's an update on some Philadelphia comedy. Frank Talent of the Pennsylvania State Athletic Commission the past two weeks now on his boxing wrestling radio show said that the CCW January 14th show scheduled now for 3.30 p.m. would be moved to 8 p.m. because the commission was going to enforce this rules against two events taking simul- t- taking place simultaneously in the same city. He had also stated that the January 4th Ring of Honor show would still be moved to January 15th. Both CCW and Ring of Honor are adamant about not moving and both promotions have stated that no matter what was said on the radio show that CCW is at 3.30 p.m. and Ring of Honor is at 8 p.m. and neither will screw the fans who have tickets to both shows. So I just Matt, I want I, I I would love to hear these Frank Talent radio shows. I love that Frank Talent. Like I would love a podcast just full of Frank Talent stories because I bet there are a ton of them. He seems like a character. I love the idea. This is the commissioner. He keeps saying publicly, like they're not going to be running on the same night. Like don't worry. And then the promotions are like literally speaking out to the commissioner of the state and being like, don't listen to what he says. This is going to happen. Well, yeah, it's, it's I, crazy. I mean, listen, I, I mean. I don't know if it's like this in Canada, but in America, a lot of these commissions don't really have that much power. Um, like these government officials, like, so I, I, I kind of understand why they were just like, what, what are you talking about? Of course we're going to run. Like, like, how are they going to stop them? You know? Yeah. And then finally we get kind of the follow that happened after this that kind of sums up how each of the shows did. Dave wrote, the January 14th wars in Philadelphia saw all sides very happy with the results. The Pro Wrestling Unplugged show, which featured Jake Roberts pinning Sandman in seconds, drew somewhere between 600 fans, which Dave writes, the estimate going around, and 750 fans, the number promoter Johnny Cashmere told us. And I just want to say, you know, Dave has taken so many bogus numbers and promotions at face value. I kind of felt for Johnny Cashmere. Yeah, like, this the is the one time he's like, yeah, I don't know if I buy this. Oh, yeah. what did you want to say? No, no, I'm agreeing with you. Like that's yeah, that's, yeah. that's 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 just not right. Yeah. If you're um, if you're going to let people lie to you, you should let everybody lie to you. Exactly. Yeah. You, you, fair is fair. Fair yeah. unfair is fair, Dave. That's um, right. The CZW show, which included the angle for the later Ring of Honor show, did about 500 fans to the ECW arena, which they were thrilled with for an afternoon show. The Ring of Honor show drew 825 fans to the Pennsylvania National Guard Armory, which ended up being more paid than they got in October for Kenta Kobashi. CCW usually draws a teenage fan base that comes to see the sick barbed wire matches. For example, on this show, they had Necro Butcher wrestled a barbed wire match barefoot, and you can figure out the craziness he did there. Ring of Honor draws mostly guys 18 to 35 who are into seeing four-star matches that are now into the characters. On this day... For the record, for the record I was into seeing four-and-a-half-star matches matches four was not good enough for me <laughs> on this day there was more of a crossover the angle saw brian danielson show up at the czw afternoon show as a total heel saying czw fans don't deserve a ring of honor match chris hero who was wrestling him later in the day attacked him several more from ring of honor then hit the ring including roderick strong and nigel mcginnis and even gabe sapolsky before the czw locker room came out so um i actually went and found the czw show the, the afternoon show and watched the clip of this and Chris Hero in one interview makes it sound like, like, oh, Danielson did this really profane interview. It was hilarious. It really isn't profane. Maybe it's profane for, um, Danielson in general. All he does is he says pricks a couple of times. Like he's clearly having a good time, but he, I thought he was, the way Hero did it sound like he was going to drop F bombs. I did not see Gabe Sapolsky there, but he might have been there. But you do see, basically, it's a very short Danielson promo. And then, um, you know, Hero comes out, there's the schmaz and, D- 
they had Strong, McGinnis, and Aries all come out and fight with Danielson. So basically, I thought that was a nice touch that was all of the champions. And then they did the thing, always a great wrestling angle, where they got chased and the camera follows them out of the building and they all get into a car and just drive away. And it's not as great of an angle as many people make it sound like, but it was just neat to see Brian Danielson there and kind of interacting and knowing what it's setting up. So I wouldn't say it's something that's worth going out of your way to see, but like if you have a... I, I think that show is on independentwrestling.tv. If you have a subscription there, like for 10 bucks a month, it's worth going to see that, just that clip. It's, it's, it's kind of neat, but not must see. And then finally, the last bit here, uh, the torch would talk to Gabe Sapolsky after the show. Uh, Ring of Honor Booker Gabe Sapolsky tells the torch that several factors contributed to the strong attendance for Ring of Honor's January 14th event. He says, I think it was a great example of having something that captured the fans' attention with the whole Chris Hero situation. The fact that indie wrestling is stronger than ever and also what can happen when promotions such as us and CZW last Saturday work together to benefit the fan. It is interesting that it feels like CZW, Matt, like, kind of got shafted when they had just done 1,100 fans for um, Tournament of Death at ECW Arena, and they're now they're drawing 500 because they're the ones that had to move to the afternoon. But I, I, mean, feel, I feel like there's going to be a few examples over the next you know year of us reviewing shows that we might be able to say that about the situation, yeah. about CZW maybe getting the short end of the stick in terms of benefiting from this whole thing. Absolutely. A lot of that to their own fault, too, but again, we'll get into that. And then, Matt, I know there's been a lot of news, but finally, we have another section that actually also pertains to the show, because there was two people that were booked for the show that did not work this show. So my last bit of news before we actually get to cover the show, and then uh, we have a huge Chris Hero section, but, but we will say that for before his match. Um, go to the Observer again. This Again, the story that covered like over a course of a few months, actually, but Dave would write, Milano Collection AT missed the Ring of Honor show, claiming he hit his head and was throwing up, thinking he had a concussion. However, he did up, end up wrestling on a Texas show over the weekend. So we talked about, Matt, like Final Battle, the last show we covered was uh, Milano Collection's AT's last show. He was actually booked for a few more shows in early 2006, and this was like... He never worked another show. I don't think, I don't know if right after the show, they immediately decide he was not going to work ever again for Ring of Honor, but this was definitely the incident that started. But apparently there was more to it because going to then another observer weeks later, Dave wrote, don't expect Milano Collection AT to ever return to return to Ring of Honor, although he's still booked on many upcoming shows. He canceled last week claiming he hit his head and was throwing up, but then worked a show in Texas. He claimed he didn't take any bumps at that show, but others say that wasn't the case either. There have been problems with money and doing jobs, and I wouldn't be surprised to see him work, work Rob Feinstein shows with a push. He's a talented guy who could be a standout on a roster without so much depth. So then I started wondering, like, well... This seems crazy. So then, luckily, again, I think this was months or like a month or two later, Dave had one final follow-up that seems to shed a little bit more light on this. Dave would write, Basically, Mala Collection AT left over being turned down in his request for a raise, and also he wasn't happy that Ring of Honor was going to be using Dragon Gate guys. In Japan, his promotion was at war with Dragon Gate because they pulled out of Torimon. And so, I guess that's as... I haven't been able to find out anything more than that, but... So it sounds like basically Milano was unhappy on a couple fronts. Well, when, it then, com- when it comes to the Dragon Gate thing, I don't want to be mean to Milano, but it seems like if ROH had to make that choice and was given an ultimatum, I think they probably picked correctly. Yes, in terms of how it ended up, you know. Again, I have no idea the politics of this, but like Milano works a year in the U.S. and then when he goes back to Japan, he goes to New Japan. So like, yeah, 
it's not like he's going back, you know, full time to kind of that circle of the Japanese wrestling scene. When he, again, I have no idea when he made that decision, but but you know what could have been because he was really talented. I always love, and again, we just covered that in the final battle. The AJ Styles story was kind of similar. I love the wrestling story, and I and I guess. It probably never happens anymore because everyone just knows it will get out with the internet. But we were still like in the last days where a wrestler could attempt to do the old, I'm telling you I can't make the show, but then I work another show and just hope you don't find out about it. Like I love those kind of stories. Yeah, because it's – I mean it's just – it's getting to the point where it's literally impossible to not find out about it. Yeah. I love that second layer where he's like, okay, I did work this texture so, but I didn't take bombs. And then Dave writes, apparently that wasn't true either. Like, yeah. just, he keeps moving the lot. Like, okay. And then, I would love, like, the third thing was that it turned out just to be, like, a death match or something. Like, um, anyway. And then finally, the last guy that could not make the show was Jim Cornette, who was originally booked for the show. Dave would write in The Observer, Jim Cornette suffered a bad hip injury falling down the stairs of his house last weekend, forcing him to miss the booking this week. There was no problem with Ring of Honor, as Cornette loves working with them so much, he was actually willing to fly in, and he said he was never going to fly anywhere again. But he was willing to in order to not miss the shot, since he's paid well by Ring of Honor. However, he was in too much pain to fly, to the point that they had to call an ambulance to get him to the hospital, which has never happened before. He said the pain was worse than when he fell off the scaffold in 1986. He thought he broke his hip, but it was a deep bone bruise with contusions, and he was bedridden for several days. So yeah, I thought that was interesting too, like how much, I guess, Jim Cornette was into Ring of Honor at this point, because for those who don't know... Cornette was kind of like a Mark Madden type where uh, – not the wrestling Mark Madden, the, the football Mark Madden. Where John Madden. I mean, I mean, yeah. I confused my Maddens. I for, that, that is embarrassing. But thank you, Matt, for correcting <laughs> me. Thank you for saving me that correction. I'd rather have you correct me than any of these horrible people that listen also, to this. Also, if you said called Jim Cornette a, jo- a Mark Madden type, he would probably like – try to burn your house down or something. Uh, there's enough people that feel that way about me already. You joined the club. But no, um, he was – Cornette was the kind of – was known for – he really did not like flying. He would drive to a lot of shows. It probably – I imagine he's probably take, made some exceptions. But in general, you know, he's the guy who would much la- rather take a long car trip than a short flight just because of that. So the idea that he was actually willing to take the flight – I mean, that says a lot because I imagine he turned down a lot of different opportunities because he just wasn't willing to take flights. But that brings us finally to the show. We open in the ring with ring announcer Bobby Cruz introducing the new Ring of Honor tag team champions Austin Aries and Roderick Strong. I thought this was probably a sign of an early sign that Ring of Honor did have renewed focus for the tag division because usually they do this gimmick of the first show after someone wins the world title – they go in, they open the show with like an in-ring interview. They usually only do that for the world titles. So the fact that they were doing this for the tag titles, I thought was kind of like a little sign that, hey, you know, we're trying to give this a bit of luster here. And also, um, this is the second year in a row where they're opening with like the new champion promo because Aries did it the year before because he had just won the world title at Final Battle. And I think that in 2007, they do the same thing because Homicide wins the title at Final Battle. So they're opening these shows with the new champs cutting promos. Yeah, it was kind of, uh, uh, I don't know how long it lasted, but a little tradition, at least with the world champion, it felt like where they get to, they get to have that rare show opening in ring promo the show after they win. But, um, Aries gets on the mic and he says that just like he did with the world title, he and Roderick are going to defend these tag belts all over the world and make them the most important and prestigious titles out there. Um, Roderick agrees, but he says, tells Brian Danielson to not 
to not think he forgot about him because he says he's going to become the next Ring of Honor World Champion still. He says tonight is a stepping stone to that when it, because he's going to become the FIP champion here on this show. Aries tells Roddy to go to the back and get ready for that big match because he has something right now he has to take care of on his own. Does, does it really make the FIP title sound important by saying it's going to be a stepping stone? Yeah, there, there's a lot of things on this show that make the FIP title seem not important. Um, Aries remarks that it's hot in here, and he asks if anyone else in the building's hot. And then he announces he's going to take a shirt off, which gets the very rare for Ring of Honor excited screaming women reaction. Like, I can count on one hand the number of times. Not since Jeff Hardy have women been this excited, or, or maybe uh, Trent Asset have been women this excited. Well, this was, that, was, that, was, that was actually me. <laughs> that sound that you heard. You know, Matt, you have a very lovely dulcet tones then, I have to say. Thank you. And you're good at sounding like more than one person. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm good. I am really good at sounding like more than one woman. <laughs> People don't know uh, Trevor Dame is just a figment of Matt's imagination. He's doing all the voices here. Don't but, um, ever say that I am you because then people will really come after me. Oh, God. So anyway – um Aries remarks that it's hot. But, but, other, but otherwise it is a flattering thing to say. It's just that I don't <laughs> want your enemies. That's all. So uh, Aries calls out Ricky Reyes saying that he saw him back there with a beer in his hand. So Aries is continuing his promo from the last show where he's kind of just mocking Reyes as a drunk. Um, Aries talks about how Reyes has been building a winning streak, abusing his Ring of Honor wrestling school students. He asked the crowd if they think that Ring of Honor should kick off 2006 with Aries teaching Reyes a lesson. The crowd cheers. Julius Smokes comes out with Ricky Reyes with no entrance music for an impromptu match. Aries topes smokes and Reyes on the as they're walking around the ring on the outside, and we just the bell rings, the match starts right from there, and that brings us to our opener. Austin Aries ends up defeating Ricky Reyes via pinfall in five minutes forty nine seconds when he leans backwards as he's caught in Reyes's uh, dragon sleeper and Reyes's shoulders hit the mat. Three count. Uh, Matt, what do you think about this as a you know a, a short, quick opener? You know, the promo was okay, but, like, usually, like, openers are kind of hot, and, like, this wasn't a bad crowd, but they were not into this. Like, there was really no heat. I I don't know what it is. I feel bad to say it. Like, Reyes was just – he just didn't have any heat at this point in 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 ROH. Like, it just – it just wasn't working out. I mean, the match itself was – it was all right. It was kind of bland. Like, um, you know, there was the stiff kicks. I liked that it started with a brawl. Um, Smokes on his way out was just yelling a lot, including responding to one fan by saying, your mother's titties, which is just, you know, you don't hear that too often in wrestling. But yeah, like, occasionally you get an Austin Aries chant, you know, uh, they they would they would react when Reyes would gloat after a move, but there wasn't, there was just not a lot of reaction to this, and I wasn't really reacting myself. You know, some, some of the stuff was cool. Aries was kicking pretty hard to keep up with, Reyes's hard kicks, and I thought the finish was was kind of clever, you know, with um with Reyes coming out of the back of the brainbuster, uh, with the and locking in the dragon sleeper, and Aries leaning back and pushing Reyes' shoulders down while in the while in the dragon sleepers. So I guess to you know just to make it so it wasn't a conclusive ending, I guess you could say. But I, I don't know. I just was not feeling this match. I liked it maybe slightly more than you, but I pretty much agree. I, it was a decent opener. I like that Aries kind of wrestled to the emotion of the situation. He was really taking it to, to Reyes at first, like he was pissed, which, you know, it's always a big plus on me that when you're in any kind of feud, if you actually wrestle it differently than you would just a straight up match with no state emotional stakes. Um, 
I thought the usual kind of Reyes problem manifested a little bit in the middle where a lot of his offense is just very pedestrian. It doesn't seem to like build towards anything. It was just, you know, head stomps, kicks to the midsection, kicks to the chest. There was one head stomp though that looked particularly brutal but to the point where I think you see Paul Turner, the ref, genuinely like checking on Aries. Like, are you okay? <laughs> Cause it, it looked pretty bad. As for the ending, I, I didn't like the ending because I I like the endings of a guy gets in a choke and he reverses into the pen. I do like those endings. But what I like them is when it's like some crazy thing that the other guy isn't expecting, like the classic Bret Hart, Roddy Piper one, which Aries actually used against Joe in their second match of Ring of Honor, where you're in the choke, you kind of walk up the turnbuckle and kick off of it and flip over and, and, and get the pin. But I thought, thought th- I kind of hate this variation of it where like Reyes has – Aries in the dragon sleeper where he, you know, wraps his legs around Aries midsection and then, you know, falls on his back, which is what Reyes does all the time. It's his finisher at this point. And Aries just slightly shifts his weight back and Reyes does not think to like lift the shoulder. And I feel like when you put yourself in a position, you put yourself in all the time and you get caught in a pin, you look kind of dumb because it's like, haven't you been in this position always? Like it's not like a very, difficult counter like you know what i mean like it's something you should probably have seen coming yeah i get what you're saying but overall decent opener but yeah i agree that you know maybe not quite the hot opener you would want um after the match reyes refuses to release the dragon sleeper and julius smokes enters the ring and takes out the ref uh roderick strong soon runs back to the ring he runs reyes and smokes off reyes grabs the mic on the floor he says it appears that the wrestling machine is broken, and so strong must be the mechanic. Which- how long? How long was Reyes thinking of that line? <laughs> it, it doesn't exactly work, but it doesn't seem like something he thought of like on the fly. Yeah, that seems like 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 someone either told him that, or he was like thinking of that like a week before. Like oh, I got the perfect line, and um, <laughs> he says Aries is no better than his than his own students because just like them, he couldn't get out of Reyes' dragon sleeper either. And then Reyes challenges Aries and Roderick to put the tag belt on the line. So building for a future tag title match, and I did like it's a bit of simple booking where Reyes loses, but by doing the one thing I did like about the fish is by doing it the way they did it. Like, there's still a reason for them to have a rematch because Reyes can say, like, yeah, you beat me, but I still have this move that you can't really get out of. So and there it, is and, something saved. And it's good, it's a good example of Gabe's, like, location-based booking because the, when the tag title match does happen, it's at the next Philadelphia show a few months later. Yeah, so, yeah, there's a, a nice bit of booking at the end right there. Um Next, Matt, we get something. I don't know how long this is going to last because it never seems to last. But for the first time in a long time, maybe ever, we get a video countdown of Ring of Honor's top five rankings. So we get these are the top five. Five, Christopher Daniels. Four, Jimmy Rave. Three, Alex Shelley. Two, Kenta. One, Jay Lethal. That Kenta one is bullshit. Total bullshit. (laughs) He should not be in there. (laughs) He's wrestled one match in Ring of Honor and he's number two. Um, but yeah, if I, if I were anybody else on the roster, I'd be like way pissed that Kenta was on the top five. It seems like, uh, there was a few things the company did on this show, just little things that was like new year. We're going to try some new things. And oh, of course the three of honor, a lot of times they would try new things and it would kind of be like, well, like a new year's resolution. You start it. I'm going to go back to the gym and then you do it for like three weeks and you're like, yeah. This is a lot of work. I don't want to do this. So we'll see how long this sticks. But it, uh, I, I did kind of 
Hot I, ho- I hope they bring back the contenders ring slash circle slash ring. <laughs> and I hope they um, have another show where they just spend like 45 minutes talking about it throughout the main event. We then go backstage for a Colt Cabana promo. I can't wait to describe this because I want to know if you thought something was as bizarre as I did. So this is another serious Colt Cabana promo. See if you can catch the line that doesn't seem to fit with the serious tone of his promo. So uh, Colt asks us, like, what do we, the fans, want? What do you know? What the interviewer? What does the interviewer want? Do we want him to tell us a bunch of words about how he feels to swallow? How it feels to swallow Drano? How it feels to not be able to sleep? Colt says he usually sleeps a good twelve hours a night, but now he can only sleep two to three. And when he does sleep, he has nightmares about homicide. Colt says he can't describe it. He doesn't have any words. What he does have is actions, and they, those actions speak louder than words. Matt. Like, I, I really, like, did, did Colt, like, just want to slip in some humor there? Because he does this whole promo in, like, a very serious thing. And remember, this is the first promo he does after a very serious, severe angle where he is made to swallow Drano, all this stuff. And he slips in there, I normally sleep 12 hours a night. Well, the only two possibilities are that he did want to slip in some humor or <laughs> that he really sleeps 12 hours a night, which, you know, I know somebody who does that who actually sleeps 12 hours a night. I'm very jealous of this person. Um, <laughs> but it, 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 there are people that do it. I think, I know there are, but generally I would find, not to generalize, but you know, I'm going to generalize. Generally in my experience, people that sleep 12 hours a night either have one, depression, or two, some kind of health problem that should necessitate a doctor's visit. Like, or, 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 or there's like a medication that they take that causes maybe. them to sleep longer too. Yeah, that, But I guess that would fall under the, the health conditions then, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I think if you're sleeping 12 hours a night, there, there's usually a very specific reason. And probably like a fit physical athlete in their 20s as Colt Cabana was. <laughs> like, it's just a weird thing to throw out there. I'm sleeping 12 hours a night. But, um, Living that bachelor lifestyle, baby. <laughs> but Colt sits up from his chair and walks away. And another new move for Ring of Honor, they do no cuts, and Adam Pierce just immediately walks into front and takes his place and starts a promo of his own. Like, no, no stop-start, just like, hey, my turn. And uh, Pierce uh, says he came to Ring of Honor with a purpose, and he thought that he brought that purpose to Commissioner Jim Cornette. He then tried to do the same thing with Cornette when he was out there with Bill Watts on a recent show. He gets mad at Cornette for booking him in, like, these random scramble matches in a six-man mayhem match tonight. Pierce tells Cornette the message will get come to him, and it's starts tonight so this is one of those things where obviously pierce was going to do stuff with Cornette on this show and he sort of just had to carry the whole thing himself with a couple of promos and i guess you know he does a decent job of it yeah um ring of honor pure title match nigel mcginnis successfully defends the title when he defeats tony mamaluke via submission in eight minutes 16 seconds using a kimura this match matt i thought was bizarre um i guess you could call it a squash because Nigel controls most of it, but Mamluk does get some offense in, particularly at the end. And eight minutes is pretty long for a squash. What's so really how to describe this match? It's like Ravenar is a federation where usually you rarely saw a non-competitive match, and when you did, it was usually something like a student getting squashed in a minute or two, like just completely crushed. This is a title match where the challenger is someone that was a Ring of Honor champion as of the previous show. He had just lost his tag belt, and he's treated here like he's almost nothing. Like, Nigel very quickly makes Mamaluke use all, up all three of his rope breaks. He doesn't need to cheat at all to do it. 
Um, you know, Mamo even gets a, a close fist warning. Um, Nigel doesn't do any of his comedy. You know, he's not really hamming it up here either. Um, and squashes can be fun, but this really wasn't like you do see some of Nigel's signature stuff, like the rebound lariat, but the pace of the match is slow. The crowd is really dead. And most of all, there's just zero sense that even when Mamalu gets on offense, that he's any threat to Nigel at all. Um, it's bizarre to see a Ring of Honor match at, the, at this level, which is this uncompetitive. At multi, there's two points of this match where kind of Nigel has Mamalu down and he's just kicking and slapping at Mamalu, almost like just taunting him to like fire up for a big comeback. And one of those two times, um, Mamalu just does an arm bar out of nowhere. And the second time Mamalu gets up and he just throws Nigel to the floor, which just slows the match down more. Like they're building to these comebacks that never really come. It does pick up a little bit at the, at the end. Mamalu gets a little more offense. He does a big frog splash, but even there, the finish is really strange because the finish is just, um, Mamalu, who's already used all three of his rope breaks and gotten a close fist warning. He just starts doing some ground and pound to, um, Nigel throwing punches, which, you know, should get him disqualified at this point. And Nigel instead just turns it into a Camara and, you know, a not move he was using regularly for a finisher and Mamalu taps out immediately. And, um, Matt, like we, I, I say frequently ring of honor by this point had a very high floor for matches. Like there's hardly ever, I can't remember the last time on the show we've given a match like less than an average rating. I'm giving this match a slightly, this was below average. This is the first match in a long time I can remember. I thought this was just confusing and not entertaining and just bizarre to me, this match. I also wrote that it was a weird match, and I same thing. Like, it wasn't a squash, but Tony was not made to look at Nigel's league. There was even a spot where, like, Nigel was taunting Tony being like, hit me! And then Tony would hit him in the stomach, and Nigel just completely no-sold it. So Mama Luke just had to kind of throw him out to the to the floor. But I did like it more than you did. I, I don't think it was below average at all. I don't think it was good either, but I think it was, you know, I think it was interesting. Like, in it, its weird way, I enjoyed it more than the first match. I, I, I'll say that. Like, I don't think this was the worst match on the show so far. Just because it was odd and different. And I, I did think that the, you know, when it picked up the end, it came, it, the crowd kind of got into some of the bigger spots and there were some entertaining sequences. Um, you know, there was like, there was a spot where Nigel, you know, he powered out of like a triangle arm submission, but Tony held on and, you know, did it over the ropes and that counted as Nigel's first rope break. I like that. You know, I, yeah, I, I like the big frog splash near the end. So, and, and I, and I didn't really mind the finish, honestly. Like, you know, just the, the suddenness of the, of the Kimura. So I, I did not think it was as, as bad as you thought it was, but it was definitely weird. And I don't understand what the point of it was. I think this is an example of, you know, and this is a quality I generally like about Gabe in Ring of Honor at this point, which is when he gives up on a guy, there's no half measures. Like when he's done, he's done. And clearly, like, the show after they lost the tag titles, like he is, he'll be booked on a few more shows, but he is really done with Tony Mahalo. Like Which is interesting be- then that he gives him a pure title shot, but also the explanation was that Nigel doesn't care about the top 10. He's going to give pure title shots to whoever he wants, which is a weird way to go about it because then why would you give pure title shots to anyone good? But oh well. Y- yeah, I mean, 
I guess that's just I they had to mention that just to so I guess they didn't want to be constrained by having to have like the top five rankings work for two different divisions. But yeah, so they have to do that little bit of a housekeeping with Prezak being like, well, he's not, he's just going to ignore those rankings and look for the top pure wrestlers in the world. But um, that brings us to our third match on the show. The embassy of Alex Shelley and Jimmy Rave scored to the ring by Prince Nana defeat Azriel and Claudio Castagnoli with Colt Cabana in their corner in 14 minutes, 17 seconds. When Rave made Azriel submit to a butterfly submission hold, it was basically he did the, he was going to do greetings from Ghana, aka the pedigree. And when Azriel blocked it, he just sweeps out his legs while holding the double underhooks and basically does what I would describe as like a poor man's cattle mutilation where he doesn't flip over, gets the submission. Um, this was originally supposed to have Colt Cabana in it. I don't know if this was just an angle or also an injury. On commentary, um, Prezak explains that Colt was originally supposed to be in Azrael's place, but nagging back injuries and not being mentally in the game since Homicide's Drano attack have put him on the shelf. I have this. I have this very specific memory. They don't show it on the DVD, but of Cabana doing a promo um, before this match and like. He was talking about being injured, and then somebody yelled out, "Is it the hip?" And Cabana's like, "It's not the hip." That's that's a very odd specific memory. I don't remember much about the promo, but I remember that part. And I forget if it was Colt's place or or, or Claudia's place. I could be wrong, but I could have sworn. I think this was also the match that Milano was supposed to be on the show, but he had to work Texas. But um, Matt, you know. What did you think about this match? And also, did you find it as weird as I did that, like, Colt – I mean, I know it come, works out in the end, but, like, Colt's first appearance after this crazy Drano attack is him just randomly cornering Claudio and Azriel in a match against the Embassy. Like, it feels like – I did I did not remember or expect that. Yeah, I mean, it was obviously just because he was supposed to be in the match. Like, yeah, it was definitely yeah. weird, and at least he did cut a promo – uh, and the live show, they obviously cut it out for time here. So, I mean, maybe that would have made more sense in context. But yes, definitely it's weird. I definitely thought this was not the best follow-up to one of the heaviest angles they'd ever done, right? Like, it's just not not yeah. that good of a follow-up. But you're right, it does work out in the end. Um, as far as the match, I I enjoyed it. I thought it was a good match. I, um, you know, I, I liked this was, you know, Rave and Shelly as a team a lot. They were getting better as a team, and I think this was a good example. They did a lot of cool double teams that I enjoyed. I thought Azriel was as good as he's been in a while. Obviously, he was, you know, not the not the best person in the match, but I thought that he he held his own to a point. There were, you know, there were some some issues, but overall, I thought he was he was solid, and Claudio was really good too. But I thought this was definitely the embassy show. You know, and Shelley in particular, I thought was really great on this show. the The other thing that stood out was the announcers made a point of saying, "Oh, they're bringing back the tag ropes." Um, it says that they're they're quote about to be brought back, so they're gradually introducing them with like I guess flexibility for wrestlers and referees not to be used to using them. And mm-hmm. Cornette is doing it, and I was like, I don't remember this becoming much of a factor in ROH tag matches. Um, and I think part of it is like I don't really understand what problem tag ropes are solving. Like, do you remember a lot of ROH tag team matches where the guy getting tagged is like nowhere near his corner? Like, is that is that a problem? 
do you remember a lot of tag matches like in general in wrestling history? Like I can't remember any matches where like the guy goes to like an opposite corner almost and gets tagged. I can't remember one like and I'm straining to think of one right now. Yeah, I'm is- sure it's happened, but yes, it is not a major concern. I don't think it's like yeah. I, it's just I think it's just supposed to be like a symbol of old school. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I think that's more what it is than anything practical. But I but no, I really I don't know. I I thought that. Like I, I, I liked Shelly at one point being like, "Oh yeah, I, just, I have to hold the stupid tag rope," and and before he grabbed it, like. But I thought Shelly seemed like he was having a lot of fun, um, you know, being a heel. I thought that Rave did a really good job. I, Claudio and Azriel even did some decent double team stuff. Nothing super memorable, and I liked some of the, you know, some of the hot moves down the stretch. Um, you know, Rave, like you know, they were they were they worked on Azriel for a while, um. I mean, so they worked on Claudio for a while, and Rave does like a backflip, and Azriel breaks it up and does his kick combo, and he does that thing where we've seen, we saw in the uh, in the four corners match at Final Battle where he drags Claudio to the corner and tags himself in, and he you know hits a big running boot to Rave, Fireman's carry, and Shelly saves Rave, and Rave goes from the greetings from Ghana, Azriel blocks that, but Rave gets this butterfly submission. And Shelly holds back Claudio and Azriel taps out. I don't know. I thought this match was fun. I uh, I thought it was interesting what a non-factor cult was since he was there the whole time. But I thought this was a fun, good match. I agree. I, I like this match quite a fair bit. I thought this was just an outright good match. I, you know, I've complained on some of the recent shows about like 2005 about how there was a lot of uh, undercard matches that I felt like were kind of worked like main event matches that were really toned down. I felt like this was a match that is like the exact opposite where it's worked exactly like a really good version of what, what it is, which is a undercard tag match. Like it doesn't feel like they're going for broke, trying to do like everything in the world. You know, it's a little bit light, more lighthearted. Like there's some early comedy from, you know, like, Rave and Shelly where they always bring out shtick in each other and I really like that like some goofy heel vibes but like there is quite a bit of action it, it's works at a, worked at a good pace they do the very standard traditional tag structure you know faces win early Asriel gets to be the face of peril the final minutes are back and forth and I felt like this was just a good match that knew exactly what it was which was like a third from the bottom tag actually didn't really have huge stakes but it was like the best a really good version of it. I also thought, like you said, everyone was good. Azrael did at one point, he goes for a top rope double stomp, I think to Alex Shelley, and uh, he just completely misses it. And Shelley doesn't move at all. And Prezak tries to say, he's like, oh, Shelley moved, or it was either Prezak or Leonard on commentary. And clearly Shelley like did not move an inch, but they just, you know, had, had to keep going. But I, I agree that for the most part, everyone looked good. I thought Jimmy Ray, like, you know, as a heel, Jimmy Ray's been way more toned down. I felt like this was the least toned down Jimmy Rave had been, has been in a long time. Like, it felt like he decided for whatever reason on this show, like everyone else is working at this good clip. What the hell? I'm going to try and keep up and like do a few more exciting things. Like he even pulls out a top rope elbow and it was not the greatest looking top rope elbow, but I can't remember the last time Jimmy Rave did like a top rope flying elbow, but he was just, in there with everyone else, like, shit, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do the high spots too again. 
And, uh, yeah, I, I, I like that too. And I agree about the weirdness about the Colt Cabana stuff. I also thought it was funny. Um, I don't know if this was supposed to be like a new approach, although Azrael's almost done in Ring of Honor at this point, but Prezak at one point calls Azrael the suicidal demon. And I just started thinking about what if that was literal? Like, yeah, oh my God. <laughs> like, are, are all demons like maybe they should be unhappy because they're in hell or are they like, just think about a sad demon. <laughs> yeah, I feel like, yeah, that, I mean, that's a very thin line between becoming an extremely problematic gimmick. Yeah. Um, and, and I also the tag ropes thing, like you, you described most of it perfectly, but I did think like to really sit at home, Lenny Leonard like brings up the tag ropes and I felt so bad for him because it's one of those things where the second he's done talking about like the tag ropes, Alex Shelley makes a tag without using the tag ropes or the ref just allows it. And that's when Prezak comes in and bless his heart, like Prezak helps cover and be like, well, they're doing some lenience for these first two shows because it's brand new again. So the wrestlers and the refs aren't used to it. And then later in the match, they do enforce it. Like you say, that's where Shelley does the thing where he's like, come on, I'll, okay, I got to grab this stupid rope. Just wait a second. But it was funny. Like it's one of the, I always feel bad for announcers when the occasion that happens where you say something like oh this can't happen or something and literally like seconds after you say it it happens like i always feel so bad because i imagine that that i'm surprised that that doesn't happen way more often in wrestling actually but um after the match we then get clips of roderick strong versus jack evans from that fip show we talked about earlier um gabe was a gabe voiceover tells us that it was the number one contendership for the fip title strong won the match gabe says the match was so good they're going to name the entire show strong versus evans again like i said the kobashi joe joe punk treatment and then we cut to gary michael capetta in the building in front of an, an FIP backdrop in the Philly building that's kind of off to the side of the Ring of Honor entrance, and he gets a little FIP branded name graphic on the screen. Gary tells us the crowd. Gary tells the crowd that FIP is a Florida-based indie that runs twice a month and says it's Ring of Honor's sister promotion. So maybe Gary was talking to the Observer because that's basically what G- Dave just said in the Observer, but different from it in that it's an anything goes promotion. There are no commissioners. There's no booker. There's there, no there, general- is, there is a booker. I know for a fact. There's, a <laughs> there's no general managers. The wrestlers run the show. Gary introduces the man who has been FIP champion for the last 16 months. That's homicide. Homicide comes out with the FIP title as some of his FIP highlights play on the screen. Uh, Gary asks about Homicide's recently injured shoulder, and Homicide says it doesn't matter. Ring the bell. They're going to have a fight tonight. Gary then he goes to the ring. Gary then asks Roderick Strong to come out. Roderick comes out to this little FIP interview set. Um, Roderick says Homicide's shoulder injury is very unfortunate, but he's not going to show Homicide any mercy tonight. He calls himself the golden boy of FIP and says he put FIP on the map. He will be the new FIP champion tonight. He then asks Homicide if he really wants to fight with a shoulder injured like that. Homicide, we don't hear it because he's in the ring and it's off mic, but he must say fuck you because immediately Roger just says, oh, fuck me, fuck you. Like So clearly Homicide had a had a clever retort for him. And so Roderick makes his way to the ring. When Dave Prezak in a suit comes out with Brian Danielson, they make their way to the FIP interview set. Prezak's in full FIP heel manager character, if you guess, for those who don't know. In FIP, Prezak was a completely different thing. He was a manager. He was a heel. Um, he calls his, he talks about his staple, stable in FIP, DP associates. He calls them the most dominant faction in FIP. Brian Danielson then flexes his bicep and <laughs> says his goal is to scar up Strong's ugly face to make up for Strong scarring up his chest in their previous matches. Prezak says, 
since F- FIP, the wrestlers make the rules, how about this title match becomes a three-way first and by, wall? And, and by the way, I do not think Roger Strong has an ugly face. I think he's handsome, personally. Yeah, I, I believe we ranked the, the once famously the members of Generation Next on attractiveness, and I do believe Roger Strong did not finish last, and that's a handsome bunch. But um, So anyway, Price actually just make this an impromptu three-way, first fall wins it. We then get a picture-in-picture showing Roderick Strong and Danielson brawling on the outside of the ring, while Colt Cabana attacks Homicide inside of it. Homicide's thugs, which as usual they will not mention by name, chase Colt away. I believe one of them was actually Monster Mac. Um, Gabe is on commentary with Leonard at this point, because you know, in storyline, Praise that can't be in on commentary when he's at ringside. And uh, Gabe says, Homicide has gone to the back due to the attack, so we're going to have a new FIP champion tonight. So then we get the match. It's an FIP heavyweight title. Anything goes three-way. Brian Danielson defeats Homicide and Ronald Strong in four minutes, 31 seconds, when the ref stops the match when Danielson has Homicide in a Fujiwara armbar. So this was more of an angle than a match. Clearly, if that opening spiel I just said didn't like tip you off on that, it's trying to accomplish like 18 things at once in booking-wise. First, it's basically an, F- an infomercial for FIP, because like as I met recap, Gary basically tells the live crowd, like exactly what FIP is. You know, they brought out the gimmick of the little interview set off the side, which I believe FIP did. And the idea that the wrestlers booked their own matches, which I appreciate that Matt, that FIP was different, but I always thought that the wrestlers booked the show gimmick was kind of dumb because like in real life, if that was true, it would be way more chaotic. Like shouldn't everybody come out and just say it's now an eight way world title match. Cause I want a title shot too. Um, but yeah, and also, like, the, how can the wrestlers book it when, like, they might all disagree on what to book? Exactly. Like, what, what's to stop Roderick Strong from saying, like, no, I don't want you to be in this match. Yeah, like, exactly. Then then how do you decide? But um, but I do appreciate they tried to make it different, and they tried to explain to the fans. And clearly this was a point in Ring of Honor's history between this and the heavy push in the newsletters and on this show for, like, the Jack versus Roddy DVD. Like, this was... Again, another thing they started 2006 war, like a renewed push to try and get fans, I think, into buying some FIP DVDs. And then, um, you know, Gabe talks about the push on commentary. And then it's also to further the Cabana homicide and Danielson Roderick Strong feuds. And it's also to get the FIP title off of an injured homicide with minimal involvement for him. Because what happens in this match is basically Strong and Danielson brawl in the crowd, including at one point Danielson grabs a fan's jacket and just chokes Strong with it, which was pretty awesome. Then it gets to the ring. Strong hits a few big moves in short order. He looks to have the match won because he gets uh, uh, Danielson in the stronghold. When homicide returns from the back, he breaks it up. He does some very brief, very limited brawling before Danielson, you know, throws. I mean, you know, Strong ends up going to the floor. He's hurt from the fight with Homicide. Or I forget if Danielson chucks it out. Something happens. Danielson's alone in the ring with Homicide. He gets him in the arm bar. The ref immediately stops it. And the ref is, and the commentary kind of covers for Homicide. By they say on commentary that the ref had been told tonight to protect Homicide's injured arm. So basically saying, like, that's why the ref calls for them basically immediately. So I guess that protects homicide in the booking as well. Um, yeah, this was just a lot of housekeeping. It, it was not much of a match, so it's hard to really even grade it as a match. The one thing I will say is I, I do like that they try to serve so many masters with this, you know, it was a very intricate booking in some ways. I will say like 
it's weird for me to say I feel bad for FIP fans because by most accounts there weren't that many of them. But I do – and I do realize it was Homicide was injured, so there wasn't much you could do. But it is something – I wonder if you felt like – what you felt like if you were like an FIP fan that was going to those shows locally twice a month. And this guy has a 16-month world title rate and then the title changes hands on a show you probably can't go to, like way up the coast. Like that, that – that's a little bit of a bummer, I would imagine. I think that's an extremely theoretical thing that you're describing. Like, There's I re- probably five fans that felt that way, Matt, and I feel mm, bad. I'm, you know, I'm skeptical that that's even the case. Um, <laughs> but um, and I'm, you know, I'm not trying to shit on FIP. Like, it really did feel like it was a place for Gabe to experiment with stuff and you know try out some you – know, try a different style of booking. And I think that's, that's pretty cool. But this um, – yeah, it was more of an angle than a match. I do feel like it was a little bit discombobulating, this whole straddling the line between ROH storylines and, you know, sort of um, FIP storylines and different characters, like, doing different things. I feel like this was an experiment that obviously they did not, or Gabe did not think was successful, because although the FIP title appears in ROH a lot in the future, uh, this whole FIP style of presentation, I don't think they ever do that again. If I if I don't if I recall correctly, can you recall another time where they did like uh, with the FIP memory, sign and stuff like that? My memory is always worse than yours, but no, and just because you know it seems like a lot of work because you have to set up this little set, set up to the side, and you know that takes up a lot of time too. Because again, it, it's about like it like what you saw here. I imagine like lots of interjections and wrestlers arguing to sign. Well, I'm going to have this match now, which is very much not ring of honor style yeah they, i mean i'm almost positive they don't do this again you know so like i think that's you know that just tells you all you need to know about how they felt about how this went um they just got the, you know they were able to get the title off a of homicide put it on danielson and now he has both titles um you know some of the, the brawling between strong and danielson was entertaining you know as short as it was um the only other note that i have is there was a point you know like you mentioned before where homicide goes we're gonna have a fight tonight and it just made me think what he should have said was, we're going to have a rumble tonight, a very royal rumble. That's, because, you know, that promo was airing on WWE TV right this very uh, – wow. well, actually, it was one year – no, actually, it was one year earlier now that I think Aww. about it. Darn. Yes. It would have been perfect yeah. though because yeah. it, was, it was 2005, not 2006, I realized. But still, he could have brought it back. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Again, that's – I love that I just said I have a worse memory than you. And you being able to remember not just that – old rumble promo but the year it happened immediately proves that <laughs> oh, you, you know you know you know I, I i tried watching some of the old royal rumbles and oh, yeah. and i'm pretty sure they cut out that song from the intro to the 2005 royal rumble and i was very disappointed by that on on, WW, on was, wwe network i mean do you remember how much like it wasn't that huge but there was like controversy that like you're making the wrestlers look awful by doing it. It feels like nowadays, like people would have a way less of a problem with that. Well, they had that like, whole MJF Chris Jericho. What did they call that again? The, oh, uh, the something debonair. What, what was it? Dinner like, debonair, the, right? Yeah, dinner debonair. Yeah. yeah. So um, the other thing I want to say, I, I forgot that was weird about this, which was one thing that was kind of a negative about mixing the FIP Ring of Honor worlds is that you know FIP and Ring of Honor the wrestlers did not always have the same roles. And Dave Prezak is kind of like this annoying heel manager in FIP, where in Ring of Honor, he's supposed to be like just the straightforward kind of your friend face, tells it like it is, lead play-by-play guy. And so like even in this match, the announcing, which is, you know, Gabe and Lenny, has to be like, you know, I think they literally say something to the effect of Dave Prezak plays a different role in FIP, which is like as close yeah. as you can to you can sing on air like this is fake. And then 
Trezek handles it the best he can, like, when he comes back on commentary for the next match. Like, he talks in character about, like, Danielson winning for, like, two or three sentences, and then he's just back into regular Prezak mode. But, like, I can imagine that's kind of difficult, right? Like, you're, you're, you're kind of having to play a character while also now having to call everything right down, like, in the line. Like, in theory, if he's the same person in, like, the main event, he should be completely in the tank for Brian Danielson, because that's his client. Yes, but also, I mean, he'd be completely in the tank for Brian Danielson during this main event because it's ROH versus CZ. Yeah. But yeah, but yes, I get, I get your point. And then um, Dave had a little note in the Observer about this. Uh, he wrote, Danielson also won the FIP title in a quick four-minute, 42-second match over Champ Homicide and Rado Trunk. Obviously, this was done because they needed to get the belt off an injured homicide who held the belt for well over a year. There was a long-term booking plan of making Danielson a double FIP Ring of Honor champ with the idea it would elevate the FIP belt. But had homicide not been injured, it wouldn't have happened this soon. So I thought that was interesting. So I I wonder if that means that they would have had – like we do see multiple – Homicide Danielson matches this year, including one obviously very famous one later in the year, but there's one in the middle of the year too. So I wonder if that would have initially have been for the FIP title. Maybe they would have set it up then. And knowing that Danielson ends up winning the uh, pure title, you know, in the middle of the year, if they were, if maybe since those would have been much closer together in time, maybe they were going to do like a little. He's the original Kenny Omega. He's the he's the belt collector kind of thing, maybe. But although, uh, although when he wins the pure title, he retires it literally immediately. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And that brings us to Christopher Daniels with Allison Danger in his corner, defeating Jay Lethal via pinfall in 14 minutes, 55 seconds, after he reversed a roll-up into a cradle for the quick flash pin. Uh, we had recently seen these two wrestle, but technically I guess not, because uh, Daniels was Curry Man this time he's straight up Christopher Daniels. Uh, what do you think about this match, Matt? So the thing that stood out to be about this match, because there was some good work in it and stuff, it wasn't like a bad match, but... I was really surprised how little Jay Lethal did to be a heel in this match. Like, Jay Lethal had been a heel in ROH before, uh, you know, in Special K. We've seen him be a heel, you know, as he became more experienced and be really good at it. In this match, he he didn't have a lot of heel momentum because he wasn't really trying to do anything. And, like, it was hard for me not to compare him to Jimmy Rave, who, when he turned heel, suddenly, like, obviously he had Nana to help him out, but, like, he he really leaned into it. Lethal seemed to have less personality here than he normally did, like as a babyface, which I thought was I don't it was just really strange to me. Like he just he was he was more robotic than I'm used to seeing him, and I like Jay Lethal as a wrestler a lot. You know, like the the only real thing that that I you know he would occasionally be like you know like kind of like spread his arms out to be like yeah look at me, um, and there was one point where he told the referee after he. After uh, a kickout, my mother could count faster than that, and I was like, "Why would why would his mother not be able to count fast?" Like that. I noticed mean- that too. It's like clearly he wanted. He thought he was thinking along the lines of my mother could hit harder than that, but yeah. it's like our mothers notorious for their slow counting skills. Yeah, like, like a I don't child know. could count faster, and that would make a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, he also at one point says, "I'm the hottest free agent in wrestling today," which also does. I mean, I mean, okay, that's not so bad, and like. Also, what does he mean by free agent again? Like, what's the like? Who is he looking to have? Like, like he's talking to like other wrestling companies. Is that the idea? I think, I think on the last show when he talked, I think he was he was setting it out as like managers. Like, I guess we're supposed uh-huh. to assume that like maybe like the Prince Nanas and Julius Smokes of the world should be like bidding on him. But I don't know if they ever really play that up, especially because Lethal is not long for Ring of Honor. But I don't know if that was if that was a plan. I'm not sure. 
Yeah. So, like, so I mean, as far as the like the the wrestling in the match, you know, Lethal works on Daniels' back. Daniels' back a lot. That's like kind of one of the main things. It's about a few backbreakers, belly to back suplex. Um, you know, he uh, Daniels comes back, does some backdrops, hits a tilt to world backbreaker and blue thunder bomb. Um, at one point, Lethal hits a what I thought was a pretty good spine buster. So like his wrestling moves were still good. Um, the finish was weird because. So Daniel tries to get his feet up for the diving head, but but Lethal lands on his feet, tries to grab Daniel's legs, and then there's like this convoluted roll-up, and Daniel gets the win. So I thought the finish was weird, um, especially yeah, unless they really knew Lethal was leaving, because I guess that makes it a little make more sense, because Lethal did not have much momentum, and he was supposed to be, wasn't he number one in the top five? Yeah. So like it was just a really weird presentation, and I actually, you know, I don't usually blame the wrestler but i thought lethal seemed to drop the ball here on his heel turn the booking didn't help him but and again i like jay lethal as a wrestler a lot so i don't want to make it sound too negative but i think that he did not do what he needed to do to get this new character over um i thought this was like a low good like maybe like a flat three stars i i felt like this was a typical daniels match where it's like exceedingly professional it's polished move execution he sells his back as Daniels loves to sell his back a lot of the times. And it just left me slightly cold. And I feel like sometimes occasionally lethal could be like that too for me. And he kind of, you know, they, they kind of both did that for me here where it's like the work was mechanically sound. Um, I'm not quite as hard on you. I mean, as hard on lethal as you are in this match. I feel like he tried to interact with the crowd a little bit, but I definitely agree. And, we, and we've talked about this a bunch on recent shows. I mean, so I, we're, I'm becoming a broken record, but clearly like, and there's no shame because he was very young, but Jay Lethal was just not ready to carry a character like this. Just, yeah. and, and I agree with you on that. So like completely, you know, he was already a pretty darn good wrestler for a guy barely out of his teens, or I forget how old he was, but like he, you know, he just, too much too soon from in terms of the character. Um, there, there was a moment that was not a heel moment probably to me. Like, I don't know what the fan said to him, but there's a moment where he really gets into one fan. I thought, Oh, he's going to be healing it up. But then lethal calls the fan a racist, bigoted motherfucker. So it seemed real. So I have to imagine there was some fan that said something probably really ignorant because wow, I missed that. Yeah. Yeah. You can, there's a fan. He literally says you racist, bigoted motherfucker. And, uh, yeah, he probably was, probably was a racist, bigoted motherfucker. If, yeah. if and so to me, that, I was yeah. like, Hey, like lethal's a face again. <laughs> Call that guy out. I don't yeah. know what he said, but, yeah. um, uh, you know, there was some stuff that was not bad. I, I, I thought it was one of those matches too, where, um, and we'll see another example of this in the main event where you happen so often in the Indies where if you know you're going to win, you're very generous to your opponent. I thought this was a very a match where Gamus was very generous to Lethal, where he gave Lethal a lot of the offense of the match. And, um, you know, he, even that that convoluted finish you talk about is kind of like against the flow to almost see like not cheap win, but like, you know, not a very dominant win for Daniels. Almost like saying like, if I have to beat you, I'm going to make it kind of as easy as it can be. Um but the problem with that was like Daniels is good. Like he, and he does in this match where even though lethal dominates a lot, it never really gets boring because Daniels is really good at like breaking up a long period of getting dominated with these quick, like one or two move comebacks and then gets cut right back off again. But I feel like it's kind of a trade off. And I don't know what's the, the right way to do it because like on one hand, 
it keeps the Metro effort getting really boring from like having a long uninterrupted heel control section. But on the other hand, like when Daniels finally does make a comeback, like a bigger comeback, it doesn't really get a big reaction because the fans are kind of like, Oh, we've seen you have like lots of little comebacks. So this isn't a huge deal. So it's kind of like you get a little bit of good and a little bit of bad. Um, my favorite spots in the match were actually both lethal springboard moves because both Daniels had two cool com- uh, counters. One was uh, lethal is going to springboard and Daniels just like palm strikes him out of the air and the crowd you know, goes, you got bitch slapped. And then the other time, like lethal springboards. And as he's like got his feet on the top rope, Daniels just like grabs him in a cradle and instantly hits him with a death alley driver, which I thought just, it looked really like fluid and cool in the way they did that. Um, and yeah, just like you, I, I thought the booking was uh weird because it felt like, you know, Lethal is getting this big push. He gets to beat Joe. He wins that four-way, which this match is kind of like a rematch from that four-way. Daniels immediately gets the win back here. And again, I'm not sure when Gabe knew he was going to stop booking Lethal. But I did after this match. I was like, I wonder like when he knew. So I looked up um, – all of Jay Lethal's matches on Cage Match and Ring of Honor for 2006. He has seven matches in 2006 in Ring of Honor. I think like two of them come way down the line after he's in TNA and Gabe decides, oh, I can bring him back once here and there. But like he is 0 for 7 in 2006. He doesn't win a single match in 2006 Ring of Honor. So like I like this idea. It's, one of the, it's almost like the special K thing we talked about in the past where a guy does this gimmick where he turns heel and he's like, you know what? I'm going to, you know, I'm tired of this. I'm going to show a new leaf. And then they proceed to like their career takes a drastic nosedive. <laughs> like, I love that he's like, I'm the Haas free agent. And then he starts losing every match. I mean, maybe Gabe had the same reaction I did to uh the heel stuff. It could be, I mean, um, or it could just be a bunch of behind the scenes stuff that I, you know, that we're not privy to. And that's yeah. why lethal left. Like, you know, I mean, I guess probably more likely, honestly, but either way, like this is another guy, much like Tom, Tony mom look like the push is over very abruptly. It's just, yes. it's done. Yes. Um, lethal gets a big match. Uh, you know, a big tag team match with Brian Danielson involved, uh, I think on the next show. Yeah. And that's pretty much it. Yeah, yeah, that's the main event of the next show. But uh, after the match, Jay Lethal offers Daniels a handshake, which, again, he's a heel and he's doing that. Scene. But I guess it's kind of a taunt because at this time there's still the thought of, hey, everyone knows Daniels won't shake hands, even though Daniels was a babyface at this point. Um, Daniels just poses instead of doing the handshake when Samoa Joe runs in and he chases Lethal out of the ring. Then Joe goes to follow him out of the ring to, you know, chase after um, Lethal. But Daniel stops him from going out of the ring, pulls Joe into a brawl with him instead. Joe gets the advantage, but then Lethal sneaks back into the ring, low blows Joe from behind. Lethal goes to put the boots to Joe, but Daniels pulls Lethal off of Joe, and the two start arguing with each other. When BJ Whitmer runs in the ring, he gives uh, Daniels a wrist clutch exploder. Whitmer then grabs the mic and he says all the fans may have forgiven Christopher Daniels, but he hasn't forgiven nor forgotten that Daniels walked out on him and the prophecy two years ago when he chose TNA over Ring of Honor. Uh, Whitmer says there's one reason he saved Joe, and that's he wants Joe at 100% for their match later tonight. But then later, when they do have that match, there'll be no one to save Joe's ass. Allison Danger then helps Daniels struggle to his feet, and as soon as she gets him to his feet, Joe just murders um, like Daniels with a running boot that looked really great because like Al's in danger, like barely had time to move out of the way. I thought that was really good timing there. So yeah, just, you know, again, building up some matches for the future. It's interesting how much of like this stuff, especially the Daniels and Whitmer stuff sort of gets brushed aside because Whitmer gets heavily involved in the CZW feud shortly after this. 
Yeah. Same with like the Pierce stuff too. Like, yeah. I mean, and it's for the better, but it just, it definitely like once the, they find the place for those two guys in the CZW feud, it's like a lot of the stuff I imagine gets quickly forgotten about, but yeah, I mean, cause it's because yeah, like you said, it's better. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, this so was this was I think this was a fun, chaotic little post match segment building up some stuff. Yeah, I thought Joe was really good. Like, we'll get to his match later. Yeah, I yeah. He was I'll, really I'll, I'll, have more, I'll have more to say about Joe tonight. Yeah. Um, it's intermission. Gary Michael Capetta is backstage with AJ Styles. Gary asks AJ why he wants to wrestle Matt Seidel tonight. I guess I guess the story of this match is that this is a match AJ has asked for. AJ says it's a test, mostly for himself, something he can benefit from. AJ immediately walks out, and again, just like that promo with Colt earlier, Adam Pierce walks in with like no camera cut, just takes over. He goes, Yes, Gary, where Jim Cornette is. Adam is pissed he has to wrestle in a six way tonight. He says he'll have a message for Cornette later if he's watching the show. So continuing the little show long, incredibly exciting. Adam Pierce has a message for Jim Cornette story. <laughs> uh, and that brings us to the first match after intermission, a six man mayhem match. Jack Evans defeats Adam Pierce. Jason Blade, Kid Mikazi, Sal Renaro, and the debuting Trick Davis in 11 minutes, 28 seconds, when he pins Mikazi after Pierce hits Mikazi with a power driver, and then um, he goes to pin Mikazi, and Jack Evans breaks it up with a big 630 and steals the pin. Um, Trick Davis was a guy working uh, CZW, kind of, he was a decent indie guy, and he gets, a, he'll, he'll work a few times for uh, Ring of Honor in 2006, um, you know. I think he was friends and maybe even trained a bit with a Chris Hero. So I wonder if that's part of the reason why he's on this show. I'm not even sure. I would say, Matt, this was a match that was simultaneously less crazy than you think and more crazy than you think. I know that's going to sound weird to people, but I would say it's less crazy because a fair amount of it is like more character based. It's more about Adam Pierce being like this ill fitting fish out of water in a scramble that, you know, he's not a scramble type wrestler. And it was like, also, re- a- it was also really funny that Sal Renaro tried to start a fish out of water chant just to make it extra on the nose. <laughs> and then, um, Adam Pierce, like at one point early in the match, like he tries to do a kip up over and over and he can't do it. And so he just like gives up and immediately tags out. So stuff like that. And there's, a, you know, he plays spoiler in this match at one point where Trick Davis is going to do a big dive to the floor and Pierce like runs in the ring and attacks him to get some pretty good heel heat actually for it. But Pierce even pulls out a super fly splash or he even tries his best to get in on this. So I would say because there's a, bit, a fair bit of focus on Pierce, like there's still action in this match and everyone gets to do something. But maybe there's a bit less than you would think on paper because a bit of um, Pierce gets a fair bit of the focus in this. But I would say this match the reason why this match is crazier than you think is because I would say there is no less than three times in this match where someone almost died or could have died. Um, at one point, Evans flies over the top rope to the floor and he doesn't even touch the rope, which is a bump I've seen Evans take before, but it always is crazy where he just kind of like does flying moves where he just flies over the rope and just does not even touch it to break his fall in any way. Then uh, later, um, Sal Renaro, who I thought had a pretty good match except for this, he goes to do like a dive to the floor, but he slips off the top rope. So he does this thing where he's like, shit, since my planned dive didn't work to the floor, I'm just going to like flip over the top rope and, and, you know, do a quick make good dive. And he catches like Jack Evans with his leg really hard right in the head. I felt poor Jack Evans is having a rough one here. And then last but not least, it is the worst spot. Um, Adam Pierce goes to body slam Jason Blade over the top rope to the floor, and he almost loses Blade. And like, 
if Blade doesn't, like, he kind of slips out of Pierce's arms, and if Blade did not, like, rotate and land more on his feet on the way down, he would have landed right on his goddamn head, like, from the ring to the floor and died. Like, he is very lucky he was able to have the the body control to um rotate. But overall, I mean, it was a decent scramble, far from the best, far, not the worst. The pure stuff was somewhat entertaining, you know, playing the fish out of water, even if the chant was on the nose, Matt. Um, also, I thought it was funny, um, Jack Evans at one point does Kenta's Busaiku knee and literally screams Busaiku knee. That was the spot <laughs> where he, that was the spot where he flew over the, uh, over the top rope. Yeah, and that will not even be the last, um, wrestler on this show who does a running knee and then flies over the top rope. So yes. what a show. Anyway, uh, Matt, what did you think about this match? Yeah. I, uh, I mean, I kind of, I agree with you, you know, I mean, the, it was, I said, I would describe it as entertaining enough, you know, like it was, yeah. it was, it was wacky because of Pierce, you know, he was clearly leaning into the comedy side of his wrestling in ROH so far, which would kind of go away for a while when he got more involved in the CZW feud, like you mentioned, but you know, I think Evans was a good foil for him. You know, he starts by, quote, serving him with breakdancing, and then you get to see Daniels do the the clumsy – I mean, I mean, I'm not Daniels. Pierce do the clumsy dancing and tagging out in frustration, and that's when Renaro, um, Renaro tries to start that fish-out-of-water chant, which, I mean, besides being on the nose, is a really awkward chant that did not work at all. Nobody chanted <laughs> it. I remember – that was one of my memories from being there. Like, it's like, wow, that was just a fail and a half – Starting that chant. Um, there was also a spot where Pierce uh, attacks Trick Davis from behind and yells, Get up, you midget! And then Leonard goes, He's not a midget. They're called minis. And I was like, Hmm, Tony Khan would probably like that, you know, with his enjoyment of, you know, calling things trios matches and such. Like, he'd probably like the, uh, you know, more the lucha style description of the uh, smaller wrestlers. Um, but, um, but yeah, no, it was a, uh, there, there, there was also one spot where where Renaro jumped on Pierce's back and leg dropped him and Prezak goes, what a maneuver, which I don't know how long he was waiting to work that one in, but I thought that was an interesting place to put it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, overall, like there was definitely the sloppiness that you get in these matches. Like you mentioned pretty much all of it. There was also another spot where Evans and blade were doing a series of reversals and they almost fall down like in the process of doing <laughs> them. So it definitely had its sloppiness. And but it was it was different enough that I think it was entertaining enough. That's I think a good way of describing it. Entertaining enough. And that brings us to Samoa Joe defeating BJ Whitmer, who was scored to the ring by Lacey in thirteen minutes twenty seconds via knockout. So this was a uh, finish. You know, another again I talked about a show. To, this felt like this is the first show of 2006, Ring of Art decided it's a new year. Let's try a few different things. That we there's a quote from the Observer we'll talk about in a second, but like. They were trying even stuff like a knockout finish here. Um, Matt, what would you think about the match, though? And I guess the finish, too, about the idea of, hey, like, hey, we're going to try. Because this was clearly one of those finishes where, because the crowd wasn't used to it, it was kind of like a, that's it? Kind of what? Kind of finish? I mean, reaction from the crowd? Yeah, exactly. That's how the finish went. But, you know, on DVD, I think it you know plays very differently. Um, yeah, I think Joe was, was feeling something on this show. He had really... You know, watching him on recent ROH shows, he felt like he was not fully himself to me. And he did feel pretty close to fully himself here. He was really on fire, like to the point where 
like you mentioned, he like very early in the match, he does his running knee in the corner, but he does it like with so much intensity and fervor that he flies over the top rope to the floor. Like I never seen that before. It's crazy watching a guy as big as Samoa Joe do that. And it was scary, but also like super fun to see. So, and to be clear, I, like, do you agree? Like he wasn't expecting no. to fall out of the ring. Like he no, did no, no, kind no, of no. A, a nasty bump on his, his hip, like hitting yeah. the ring apron on the way down. It seemed like he was fine and he shook it off, but like, yeah. yeah, like it was like, he definitely made a face like, Oh wow, that was something like, no, there was no way that was intentional, but you know, like he starts off running through a signature spot, but like the big thing about this match was that it was stiff and they were hitting each other hard and slapping each other a lot and fighting a lot on the floor and Joe hits a pretty good elbow suicida and then tosses a chair to show that he's like super fired up and they're throwing each other into the guardrail and BJ goes for the ole ole kick and Joe stands up and chops the crap out of him and sets him up for his own ole ole kick and BJ avoids that too um and like at one point Joe um Joe is like doing the kick but BJ pokes Joe in the eyes um you know they're doing a lot of whipping into the guardrail and at one point uh, Joe reverses a whip into the guardrail, then does a running kick, and Whitmer just flies into the front row. They set up a table, and, you know, this is all pretty early. Like, Whitmer goes, uh, tries to reverse another Irish whip, but boots Joe and hits an exploder on Joe, who was supposed to go through the table, but Joe barely grazes it, just hits the concrete, and I imagine TNA was not happy about that. <laughs> but, again, seems like everyone was fine. But, you know, Whitmer gets some more two counts, hits some more big moves, misses a frog splash, Joe moves out of Joe moves out of the way. You don't really see a frog splash much from BJ Whitmer either. So a lot of guys do it. You know, it's like it's like Raves uh, flying elbow. You know, Whitmer was really feeling it too. I think like they, like he was really trying to like keep up with Joe. I think like he was raising his game to meet Joe. Um, uh, when uh, when Joe comes at him with the running uh, corner boot, Whitmer gets up, catches him with an exploder, which I thought was really cool. Um, Whitmer rolls through the ST Joe, uh, and Joe catches him with a very hard clothesline, goes for the choke, Whitmer makes the rope, so Joe keeps kneeing him, and Joe gets it on again, and Whitmer bites his arm to escape, and they're, they're doing these, uh, you know, Joe, Whitmer's hitting, like, hard forearms, a roaring elbow, and Joe ducks a second roaring elbow, slaps Whitmer, hits an insanely loud kick to the face, then drops on him with the elbows, and that's when Joe gets the knockout. I thought this was a hoot. This was so much fun to me. Like I, I it, it just felt like it was propulsive. It never felt slow. It never felt like it overstayed its welcome. Joe felt like he was just like happy to be there and just like full of energy. Whitmer was really you know laying it in too. This was not a match you usually see on ROH undercards. This is something that I want to see more of. Like I, I, it was something that was kind of missing from I think a lot of 2005 undercards. It was just fun and different and exciting, and I really liked it. It wasn't a great match per se, but like it was just a lot of fun. Yeah, I completely agree. If I had to put like a rating, it'd be like on the board of like three and a half and three and three quarter. But like for a match, like I wasn't expecting that. And like you said, I, I feel like it's almost like someone went in time and listened to some of our recent complaints. Cause we were talking about how like, you know, not every match needs to be like a four star great match, but you need some variety, like make different kinds of matches. And yeah, like you just said, you said it perfectly. Like you don't see a lot of this. This is, I feel like this is the exact kind of match you would want these two to have as the kind of match ring of honor doesn't have the roster to do much, which is they don't have, 
have many big guys, and this was kind of like a Haas battle where it's like two bigger, hard-hitting guys just throwing bombs and hitting each other hard. It's not like they're doing like a million moves a minute. It's just that every time they're touching, you know, it's a hard hit or a big bump or, or you know, and it's intense. And, yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you agree. Like, I really thought not even just the match like that angle or you're like – Joe, I don't know if he ate his Wheaties this day or what. Like, he was really going for it. In, 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 you know, in a match, quite frankly, you know, you would think if he was going to save himself, this would be a match he could save himself because it's not like there was any big storyline. The only thing was, oh, they were in a four-way against each other on the last show, but they had no feud. It's not like a high marquee match. And Joe had a TNA pay-per-view the next day, so he had, like, every reason to kind of do a more reserved performance this night. And since like probably the most into it we've seen Joe since the Kobashi shows, I would yep, say. Definitely. And um uh the end I thought was I like the idea of doing KOs. I thought and and that one kick that started to start it all, like you said, was very loud. My one problem with that is I think like you see so many brutal things in wrestling that like when the ref jumps in immediately it's almost like you start thinking in your head of all the times in wrestling you've seen big spots where the ref didn't jump in immediately and go, well, that's kind of inconsistent. They're trying to listen to Wade Keller tell them to be more like MMA. <laughs> yeah, him and uh, Dave were big. O- on commentary also, I should mention, um, Dave Prezak said, Joe gave da- Christopher Daniels another concussion tonight, and Daniels is now at the hospital. So I guess that's to explain why Daniels isn't trying to get revenge for like the attack earlier. Um Dave Meltzer, though, had a much different thought about the KO finish, which I thought was interesting. So I'll read his thing here. He wrote, similar to TNA, they tried to shoot world finish with Joe being Whitmer via knockout after a kick to the head. The fans still didn't know how to react to the ref stoppage as opposed to a pinfall submission finish. The idea here, at least, was to educate them and make ref stoppages acceptable finishes. The thing is, ref stoppage or 10 counts don't have the drama of a 3 count or a rope break, so neither makes it as effective false finishes, even if they are are more realistic. In another era where there was no real pro wrestling, to, so, to, so to speak, that anyone saw, you could book for realism. But now, the best you can do is book for drama with a realistic vibe. But sometimes the most lifelike isn't the most dramatic, as even in Japan, where they do these finishes, they aren't as hot as a more traditional finish. So, Dave Pat actually shitting on the idea in general of doing a And I, I get the feeling of, like, I think there's a time and place for a KO finish like anything else. But I do get the idea of, like, unlike a submission or a near fall, like, KOs come out of nowhere, so you don't get that audience anticipation of, oh, my God, is this about to end? It's more of a, oh, shit, it's over? Really? Like, that's it? Like, you're not expecting it, but... Yeah, I get what he's saying. Um, I do think that, and it's still true, obviously, but I do think over time, these kinds of finishes did get more accepted. Um, Brian Danielson was a big part of that, and I think it's certain wrestlers people accept them from. You know, and certain wrestlers, they don't. I think Joe could be one of the wrestlers where they do. And I think, like, I remember live being kind of weirded out by the finish. Not like weirded out, like, oh, this is creepy, but like weirded out just like, ah, this is, I don't understand what just happened. But I think it plays pretty well on tape. And I think that it does play better in 2022 than it did in 2006, which I think goes to show that they, somebody effectively got these finishes more accepted. Yeah, um... I was going to ask because your memory is way better than mine. Um, although not that I expect you to remember all this. So, you know, no pressure, but like other than Danielson, who kind of took it upon himself to make like the KO finishes with like the ground and pound a thing, 
did anyone else like were there a lot of MMA like I mean KO finishes in Ring of Honor after this because I don't really remember it being a huge trend other than Danielson kind of taking it upon himself to do some. No, definitely not a lot, but like Danielson would do them a decent amount of the time. Yeah. You know, and I think that, you know, makes a difference. Definitely definitely. And, and with his like again, and he, and he still was, does he still does occasionally also. And I think he did good with that is he kind of solved Dave's problem in a way, which was most of his kale finishes came from like the ground and pound elbows. And it was like the, re- the, the opponent would usually struggle in it for at least a few seconds, maybe more if they were like a higher ranking wrestler. And because it was almost always a KO from that move, it, it did create the anticipation again, because rather than it just being a KO out of nowhere, it was like, Oh shit, if Danielson keeps doing this, this guy's going to be knocked out. Yes, exactly. And so he kind of, he kind of, he kind of solved the problem, but um, we then get a home take promo. This was originally aired on ringofhonorvideos.com, which they were, we've talked about on recent shows. They were starting to do these extra promos on Ring of Honor videos and, and then also putting some of them on DVD. Um, but it's a home take promo from Jimmy Jacobs. He says he's not the little kid that Alex Shelley used to beat up anymore. Like all of these Ring of Honor website promos so far, He's, he's, he's doing a lot of recapping of his career again. Like these promos really did feel like they were kind of trying to introduce characters to people that were not watching Ring of Honor. Um, he really focuses on recapping his tag title run with BJ Whitmer. Jacob says Lacey filled a void in him that was created by losing the tag belts, but that void that she filled, it was in his heart. We, we cut to Jimmy in his bed. There's a candle on his nightstand along with a bottle of wine and two glasses, even though he's alone. He pours himself a drink and he says he knows that his relationship with Lacey is just a business one right now. But he's letting the world know that he loves Lacey and but he believes that she loves him, too. He pours a second glass. He says Lacey completes him. The old Jerry Maguire line. And this bed has room for two. JC says Lacey is the one for him. And then he kisses a picture of him. I just wrote in all caps at the end of my little notes here. Jimmy loves Lacey has begun. Uh, Matt, I forgot, like, you know, obviously it became a very kind of lovable storyline for Jimmy Jacobs that really be- made him a huge babyface with the crowd. But, like, I forgot, like, this initial promo. It is profoundly creepy. <laughs> well, this is this is exactly what I wrote. The funny thing is, to a 2006 ROH fan, this creepy stalker unrequited love behavior made Jimmy a babyface. <laughs> <laughs> which is i mean listen it what can you say i mean it's not exactly surprising that the crowd would react like that this is a 2006 roh crowd 2006 wrestling fan crowd a lot of internet guys um and yeah i mean it's bad that that's the case but it's not surprising um so this you know this was you know but you know despite of that it obviously had some charm in that it added character to Jimmy Jacobs even if it was a total creepy stalker creep um and really important to him so here's what I'm trying to remember maybe you since you've watched a lot of the shoot interviews and stuff know this was this something that Jimmy came up with completely on his own just sent it in to ROH and was like hey let's give this a shot or was this something that Gabe suggested to him to make this video like that. Like, was it just like, sort of like, eh, this is my chance to get myself over. Let me show th- this video. Maybe they'll like it. Or was there more of a plan behind it? I, th- I forget, but I, I, I'm pretty sure from some of the things I've heard from Jimmy, like shoots and stuff, I think it was like the way I, I think he's described it was he saw like he was being phased out and he needed to try something. And so he kind of gave, he, he produced this for Gabe and Gabe to his credit was like, I love this. Like, 
run with it. So in a way, we'll get to a story of Chris Hero in the main event. It's, it's a very similar story of examples of guys that Gabe either did not see anything with or was kind of giving up on. And yeah, from what I hear, this was uh, Jacob's completely on his own. And then Gabe just being like, okay, let's go down this path because this is actually really good. Um, and, and, you know, I don't know if he was injured or had a prior commitment, but, you know, it's probably a sign that he's not even booked on this show. So, right. you know, clearly his career, like, I, I think when you look how his tag partner, Tommy Amaluk, was booked, like, I think it's very easy to imagine a world where if Jimmy does not come up with this angle, he goes the way of Mamaluk and he's gone in a few shows. And well, B- BJ, BJ Whitmer was his tag team partner. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! God damn it! My brain is going bad. But okay, he still would go with the way of <laughs> Yeah. Well, Whitmer was moving into a feud with Joe, and B- and uh, Jimmy was not on any of the shows. <laughs> so that's yeah. That tells you what you need to know. Yeah. So th- th- this is you know the start of something big though. So, um, and that brings us to the semi main event. AJ Styles defeated Matt Seidel via pinfall in 17 minutes, 7 seconds, when he countered a second rope Rana from Seidel into, he just rolls through and goes for a pin. Um, this was a very good match. I would put this right with uh, BJ Joe as match of the night. It's really very different matches. It kind of depends what you're in the mood for. But um, I thought it was missing a little something till the last minute. Um, these two are two of the most athletically impressive guys on the roster. It's, uh, in a lot of ways, you could say Seidel's kind of like a younger version of AJ at this point. Um, I thought this match flew by very quickly. Like, it never was boring. It did not feel in any way like 17 minutes. Um, It's two guys going back and forth, hitting their really cool offense, like their execution very on point. I guess what I was missing is I felt like there was zero emotional stakes in this match. Like, um, Seidel and some... I felt like, um, you know, Seidel being like the young prospect and stuff, they really wrestle this match 50-50 back and forth. Like, it's just a very standard indie wrestling, just you do stuff, I do stuff, you do stuff, I do stuff. And and I felt like there was no real sense that, like, AJ was above Seidel or this was a huge test for him. But I thought the thing that was really interesting in this match was so often people, the complaint people would have in Ring of Honor was like, oh, this match overshot its target or indie wrestling in general, like, Oh, this match was great. And then they did an extra two or three near falls. There is a moment with like one minute left in this match where it's, it's actually like a simple move compared to some of the big spots they do in this match where Seidel just like counters, like a attempted power bomb into a Rana, but such a snappy Rana. And it's a big, that the crowd really buys into it as a big near fall. And after that near fall for the last minute of the match, it's like the mood, like the crowd was into the match of four, but there's like an energy in the crowd in that last minute. And it feels like the match has gone from like pretty darn good to like, Oh, this could be something special. Like you get the idea that for the first time in the match, the crowd's starting to realize like, Oh, Seidel could win this. And this would be like a big win for him. And maybe like this match is getting really good. This could be special. And I actually think it's a rare example of, I wish these guys had wrestled like another two or three minutes. Cause I feel like they had just started getting into like, even though this match was by no way, by no way short, like I felt like they really got to a level and a, and a crowd investment where, you know, everything was set for them if they just had another couple minutes of near falls for this to be a like great, really well remembered match where I don't feel like people really well remember this. But still, it was very good for what it was. I did like that the end called back to the spot that got the crowd really in in that final minute, which again, Seidel, I mean, AJ's going for the Styles Clash on the second rope. Seidel does another round of reversal, but this time Styles knows it's coming, so he just keeps rolling through, hits the pin. Um, 
really big. I, I, last thing before I throw it to you, I thought I noticed this was weird. Uh, Dave in the Observer he wrote about it. AJ Styles had what was said to be the best match on the show, beating Matt Sydal in the semi. The idea was Styles felt he needed to make up for missing the show a few weeks ago after he busted his lip and went out with the idea of elevating Sydal. Now. Matt, I, I, I'm curious about what you think. Is I thought Seidel was good. I mean, um, AJ was good in this, but I didn't feel like he was any extra effort or going out of his way. Like he, I guess he was being generous in that that he was going fifty-fifty on offense with Seidel. But if you look at like the biggest spots in the match, it's it's Seidel doing them or taking the risks. Like um, fairly early on, the two big spots I would say in this match are Seidel gets brainbustered on the ring apron, which you know again is all Seidel taking the risk. And then later in the match, Seidel does a moonsault off the top rope into like the first row of the crowd, which again, it, it's, you know, Seidel taking the risk. But I just thought it was interesting watching, like reading that recap, its composition does like, you know, Styles going the extra mile. And I thought it was just like a good standard AJ Styles performance. No, I thought this was by far AJ's best performance since coming back to ROH. Like, I, I thought th- I actually liked this match. I think probably kind of significantly more than you. Wow. I'd, I'd go like four and a quarter probably, and I do think there were emotional stakes. Like, I think that the crowd was really rooting for Seidel, and like Seidel had been, you know, treated as sort of like the afterthought of Generation Next to the point where, like, you know, he wasn't even in the final sequence at Steel Cage Warfare, and all of a sudden he's not only getting a lot of the offense, which I did not remember against AJ, but like it's really impressive offense. Like that that moonsault into the into the crowd, which I thought was, you know, cool, but also like really beautifully executed. I, I thought, you know, all of his big moves, that Snap Rana that you mentioned, um so I brought a friend with me to this show, like a non wrestling fan friend. This is the only show wrestling show he ever went to with me. And I remember, like, that was the one thing the entire night that really got him, like, like reacting. Like, oh, he was like, oh, man, like, when, when AJ kicked out of that. Like, it's a, it's a strong memory that I have of that, that move. That was a really big move. And I thought that, like, I just thought the execution of this match was great. AJ, yeah, he didn't take, like, crazy bumps in this match, but what he did have was, a lot more intensity and energy. I do think that he was really trying hard to get Seidel over here, and I think it worked. Like I would say, this was a absolute star-making performance for Seidel. I think his his level in ROH was different after this, um, partially because he was moved into more tag team matches. Um, you know, and it wasn't like he was a made man in ROH. He wasn't like a star at this point. It wasn't like Aries after Survival of the Fittest, but his status jumped a lot after this match. Um, and the crowd really appreciated it. I think this is one of the best matches in ROH in a while, you know, like obviously you had those matches with Mara Fuji and, and Kenta and stuff. But like, I'd say other than that, this is probably my favorite ROH match in a few shows. I would say, I really, really thought this was a great match and wow. better than, and better than I remembered. Um, I mean, I like this match quite a bit, but yeah, you definitely significant liked it significantly more than me. But it, it's funny. Um, clearly, like I think we'll see. I've been doing some research for the next few, few shows. I think like Seidel is going to take over the Roderick Strong position of guy. The newsletters get told by Gabe every month. Like Matt Seidel's in for a big push because clearly Gabe has decided you know Strong's on a new level, and Seidel is kind of one of my guys I've now earmarked for. It's his time, and he, he is. I don't think he's gonna. It's his push is gonna work quite to the level that Strong's did, but clearly he is getting 
going to be pushed more in 2006. He's certainly going to get a chance to have a lot more like memorable matches, which, you know, a few of them are tagging with AJ. Then he moves into a series with, um, Daniels and ends up tagging with him. So I, 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 it is, it is a, it is a big jump in status for Seidel, even though he's not going to be like a main event type of guy. But it definitely felt like even after he joined Generation Next, it was kind of one of those things where he still wasn't on every show. It was kind of like he was – it felt like Gabe was almost kind of waiting for that to finish to be like, okay, New Year, now his push starts. And now it's yep. really – again, Gabe's the kind of guy with – just like how he can go very – when he gives up on somebody, be very abrupt, no half measure. Same with the push. Like once he, once he decides it's time to push you, you know, he, he goes pretty hard on it. So – um, the crowd gives a standing ovation immediately after the match. Uh, AJ grabs the mic and says, if they call him phenomenal, there's not a word to describe Seidel. He says he requested this match with Seidel for a reason. He's got, he got a little proposal and then he catches himself, <laughs> he catches himself saying the word proposal. And then remember we're in the era of the billion Chuck and WWE, uh, wedding angle. And, uh, this is a, I mean, it's a few years after that, but yes. Yeah, yeah, and he and he tells the crowd not to worry about, and he, then he says the derogatory f word slang for gay people. He says this is ain't the WWE. We're not Billy and Chuck. Crowd laughs. Uh, AJ says this match was a test, and he knew Seidel would pass. AJ has been Ring of Honor Tag Team Champion before, but he could never find anyone to replace the Amazing Red. He proposes they go after the tag team titles together and says he's going to let him think about it. Seidel, instead of thinking about it, immediately just says, let's go for those belts, and they shake hands. AJ asks the crowd if they think Seidel deserves a title. The crowd cheers, and the cha- crowd chants, thank you both. So I did really like that they played into the history of AJ Styles at Ring of Honor, where like he reminds the crowd, like, you know, the title, I, one of the two titles I had in Ring of Honor was being the tag team champ, and it was with a, a you know, a small high flyer, and so, like, Seidel could fill that void. Um, I did think it was kind of weird, though, that, like, there is no acknowledgement from Seidel, and I guess this will become part of the angle, but, like, the idea that there's not even a half-second hesitation that, like, oh, the tag champs are, like, my friends and stablemates. He's just, like, immediately, without even mentioning, like, yeah, let's do it, guy who's not in my stable. <laughs> let's go go after my partner's belts. But overall, it was a good angle except for... Yeah, it would have been a really good promo if it wasn't for the... um, Well, not really good promo, but a really good, uh, you know, a good segment if it wasn't for the absolutely gratuitous homophobia that AJ Styles seemed insistent on bringing to ROH even more than it was already there in this era. It's not just the homophobia, which is bad enough on its own. And again, I always tell myself... um, I am comforted by the fact that this would not be able to get – the crowd would not tolerate this on most independent wrestling shows, I would like to think. I hope so. I hope not. But, but, but like I have seen between this and PWG – like this is not even the first time in Ring of Honor AJ has gone this way to do – like I feel like you could make a lengthy probably like hour-long compilation of times AJ Styles in independent wrestling has gone out of his way – to be like derogatory towards gay people. Like, it, well, like you've, given, well that, like, you've given someone an idea. <laughs> I, oh God. The not, 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 not me. I'm not doing it, but, but, but I'm just saying like, he, he seems like, it's not something that like it came up once randomly and he just was kind of flippantly bigoted. Like he goes out of his way frequently in his career to like steer things towards that. And, was this, was this like right around when Bix, you know, did the whole setup where he got AJ to go the gay community on Wrestling Observer Live? 
I'm not sure. I don't think that was Bix. I think that was some random other caller, actually. I thought it was. I thought it was. I rem- okay. Well, I mean, my memory might be sure. off, but I thought it was Bix. Like you know, bringing up the gay community on purpose to get AJ to say that. Like, it, <laughs> like it was just like I'm not. I'm not kidding. Like it was. It was clearly a setup. It wasn't like AJ said it randomly. The question was, what do you think of your popularity in the gay community? Like, yeah. like, like obviously the idea was yeah. to was to rib AJ. Yeah. And again, he was so well known for being homophobic that that was something that people would go out of their way to rib him for. Like, yep, yep. like I know this will taunt him. And they successfully taunted him. They got the exact reaction you would want. They wanted, you know, which is him to be really immature and act like someone had just said the most disgusting thing possible to him. Um, anyway, we go to Samoa Joe backstage. He sends a message to Christopher Daniels saying that what he did to BJ Whitmer tonight is just an example of the lengths he'll go to to get what he wants. He says that Daniels wants to finish their feud in Ring of Honor. Joe will finish him. Uh, Joe walks off, and for the third time of the night, Adam Pierce immediately walks to take his place. In a hoarse voice, he says he hopes Cornette is watching and thinks – and he says if you think this voice is a work, he, he tells the camera to zoom in on a red welt on his throat. And there is indeed a red welt on his throat. For all I know – this is a legit injury. Maybe he like cracked his windpipe or something like Becky Lynch did recently. He says Cornette put him in a six man mayhem and he was kicked in the throat in the match. He's angry about being put in matches like that with midgets and retards. His words, not mine. He has a message for Cornette. Do it again and again, because he's coming back for more and more. If Cornette wants Pierce to prove his worth to earn his spot, he doesn't know the length that he'll go to, to do that. So this is the conclusion of the incredible night long, Adam Pierce has a message for Jim Cornette Angle. He still has a message for him. That's the uh, that's the conclusion. Yeah, like, I, I like that they tease like I got a message that I'm going to give him later, and the message is just do whatever you want to me. <laughs> I'm going to keep wrestling. <laughs> but and that brings us to before the main event. This is I don't know how long this is going to be, but I have put a lot of work into this because I think. This is one of the more interesting stories we're going to cover for quite a while in Ring of Honor. And it's a story that really ties up a lot of things we've talked about in the last year in 2005. Let me get my popcorn and, ready for this one. And most importantly, um, Chris Hero is one of the only wrestlers from kind of this era of independent wrestling that um, – he has done a lot of shoot interviews. It's him and Kevin C. And, you know, some other guys have done an isolated one off there. But, you know, it's partly probably because wrestling has moved more towards podcasts and I kind of miss the shoot interviews. But, like, just having a guy sit down for hours and hours and go through their entire career, most guys from you know, his contemporaries, for whatever reason, have not done that. And Hero has, when I was researching this, I forgot how many he's done. He has double digits. He has a whole series now with high spots where he does interviews with other people. He's done a bunch of ones he did one with our multiple ones with our video multiple ones with high spots multiple i mean at least one with smart mark video that's like six seven hours at least and i think he's done multiple ones with them different points of his career on different topics there was one i think that he just went through match by match with one year of his career there's another one where he just talks nothing but about nxt after he got released from WWE. like and chris was one of the more eloquent interesting guys to talk about so I've gone back and I've watched a lot of them. I've also there's a podcast he has done recently called Can Chris Hero Save Wrestling with Conrad Thompson, part of the great Conrad verse of podcasts. And it feels like he didn't do that many episodes and they've stopped doing them. But if you are a Chris Hero fan or just a fan of this era of indie wrestling, it's a really good show. It's worth subscribing to like the ad free podcast Patreon for a month just so you can go and grab them. 
So I have grabbed extensively from all the stuff, and I've tried to almost kind of do what I did with uh, the Rob Feinstein show, which is kind of put together a lot of these things into like one hopefully coherent narrative. Um, a lot of this stuff, it was funny, like it was stuff I was already going to say, and it was I was surprised like how often like Chris Hero kind of echoed my thoughts, which in some ways is annoying because like now it just seems like I'm cribbing completely from these shoot interviews, but in a way it's, it's always also very relieving because i also am like oh well these assumptions i had weren't off base because he says like a lot like the christian is a guy who was very in touch with the scene like he's outright talking about the message boards and robots which was the derogatory people term people would call ring of honor fans like all sorts of stuff so um yeah so i guess we'll get to it so matt i think and again chime at any time with any of this stuff um, I think the first thing we have to talk about, something we've only briefly touched on, and you'll you'll become apparent in a sec why. This all kind of starts with message boards, and I think people, and like Chris Hero has talked about this, like people forget how big message boards were in the days before you know Facebook got really big and before Twitter. That was like where the hardcore wrestling fans were. It was like after news groups in the '90s, then came the message boards, and the Ring of Honor message board was really important to that company, like more than maybe a message was important to any other wrestling promotion. It's funny how people always talk about internet wrestling fans. You know, they, you know, the people cater too much to internet wrestling fans, which I think nowadays is such a stupid thing to say because everyone's on the internet. But back then it was a bit more applicable because there were some fans that weren't as terminally online as we all are these days. But like Ring of Honor was the rare promotion where they were right to cater for their business model because they did not have TV. They, you know, they did, this was before the days of iPay reviews or a lot of easily, easy access to immediate clips of things. This was, Ring of Honor was a promotion where you had to get it, you had to really be hunting to find Ring of Honor. You had to buy a DVD from a website online and wait for it to get there. So it was catered towards the kind of people that would post on message boards, the most hardcore fans that were seeking out extra special wrestling. And so the Ring of Honor message board was really important. Gabe Sapolsky as the booker would post there. Wrestlers would read it. Um, I know I only lurked there, Matt. I think you only lurked there too. No, I, right? I, no, I, I, I posted not a, not a huge amount, but I did more than lurk for sure. Um, you know, they would organize meetups. There would be fans back then when it was a lot harder to get live results that would like literally like phone people at intermission and be like, you make a post on the board. This is what happened the first half of the show. And people like me would stay glued to the board on those nights to see what was happening. Um, you know, they, people would arrange these big mass meetups. Those would be with the first reviews of the DVDs because you'd be like, oh, shit, my DVD hasn't come yet. But someone, you know, got the DVD first because they live close to the northeast of the U.S. So I'm going to read their review first and get even more excited. And um, but the biggest feature I would say of the message boards, one of the things I think of first when I think of the mat is one of the most common reoccurring threads that would keep popping up every year in Ring of Honor. It would always kind of shift and evolve. It was always basically the same thing, which would always be, who's the big name that Ring of Honor isn't booking? Should they book them? Why aren't they booking them? Because Ring of Honor, by its nature, being like the first super indie that was booking like the best, all the best guys, whoever was just missing that cut would stick out like a sore thumb. And people would always have a thread of like, why isn't this guy being booked? And over the years, I would say like the it guy always would shift at different points. I would say like super dragon at times was that guy. Mike Quackenbush was at times that guy. Eddie Kingston at times was that guy, but the original and the guy, no one else had this much fervor. People fighting over him was, there was always so many threads over the years 
until he came in about why isn't Chris Hero in Ring of Honor? And by the way, um, to this day, you know, Gabe Sapolsky's Twitter handle is Book It Gabe, and a lot of that comes from the message board where people would say, like, you know, do this, bring this guy in, book it, Gabe. Like, that's where that comes from. Yeah, and again, to show, it wasn't just even the Ring of Honor message board. When we get to later, like, the, the match itself, Chris Hero versus Brian Danielson, Gabe, you know, joins commentary for the main event. And he even, like, when he's trying to troll people, he's like, oh, this is the Chris Hero I've heard about on CZW fans and Death Valley Driver. Like, Gabe was very plugged into the message boards. And those people, you know, the influencers, so to speak, their opinions did matter back then. Um, in fact, Kiro in a lot, numerous shoot interviews says he thinks like, it's not the main reason, but he thinks one of the reasons maybe that he didn't get booked at Ring of Honor was that Gabe grew to resent how many people like kept asking for Chris Hero and like Hero even acknowledges that he feels like some of his fans were annoying and kind of belligerent about requesting Chris Hero, but that's just people on the internet, you know, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, ser- but, I'm serious. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But there was there was negative people on the other side too. And so, uh, what you have to remember about Chris Hero was there was a whole crew of guys that kind of came up together in the Midwest where they didn't all train together, but they ended up working a lot of the same shows, and they were all kind of coming of age at the same time and working each other a lot in places like IW and Mid South. And like that crew would be like guys like I'm sure I'm leaving some out, but CM Punk, Colt Cabana, Chris Hero, um. BJ Whitmer, Ace Steel as their trainer, like, out uh, of Hero and Cabana. Um, maybe even like you want to throw in eventually like Jimmy Jacobs and Alex Shelley. And if you read off that list of names, you'll notice that all of those guys have been booked to Ring of Honor for years, except Chris Hero. And people start to really notice like, why is Chris Hero the only guy of like this class of wrestlers who has not gotten so much as like a do or die pre-show match in Ring of Honor? And these threads would keep popping up over and over again. And there'd be these huge debates because Chris Hero at this time, like he's pretty universally liked, I would say now as an in-ring wrestler, like he's considered to be very great. Chris Hero at this time was pretty divisive. Like half of the people thought he was one of the best guys on the indies and half the people thought he was boring, plotting, didn't look the good. And um, like people's arguments that Chris Hero would be, that he didn't have gear, that he quote-unquote had trash bag pants and wrestled in a t-shirt, that he was overweight, and he was not as overweight as he would end up being on like some of his most recent indie runs, but he was significantly overweight, although he would, the by the time we see him here in Ring of Honor, he has lost some weight. He still has a little bit of a muffin top, but he's not particularly overweight at all by the time he gets to Ring of Honor. At different points in his career, he'd get into pretty good shape. And then there's also this thought that until like a few months before this, until like Chikara and a turn IWE Mid-South, he was also a very much a strict white meat, white meat baby face. And I think some fans thought he's just kind of boring. His, he does a lot of mat wrestling. He's not fun. And so the, the, these huge debates, like why isn't he getting booked? He should be booked back and forth. And it just became this huge thing for year after year after year. So Chris Hero himself has commented on this. And he says for what it's worth, he had like, he says at one point, CM Punk, when he was at Ring of Honor, was staying with um Hero, and he CM Punk actually said like, "Hey, do you want to? Uh, how would you feel about working Ring of Honor?" And Hero said like, "I'd be interested," but he says, "I don't want to ever come in in like just a random scramble or something like that." And Hero's acknowledged like maybe that was the wrong attitude to have, and I don't think he said like he, I don't think that's what hurt him, like didn't get him into Ring of Honor, but like his thought was if I come in, I want it to be something. That's more than just a random spot like that. 
but the big thing he said was wrestlers, he, he, you know, he had, he, he said also he never asked punk to reach out on his behalf when he could have, he says he and punk just didn't have that kind of friendship. Like he also noted that when punk was in WWE, he also never asked punk to put in a word for him there either, but it was punk that even asked, it was that asked him, but he said the one thing that he heard and he says he has no idea if this is true or not, but he had wrestlers that liked him in ring of honor that would reach out to, um, Gabe in ring of honor, like about booking hero and the word Kiro says, he said multiple times that got back to him was basically, you know, you're not as Gabe doesn't seem as good as good as Hero Punker Punker Cabana and quote unquote, we have enough guys that wrestle in t-shirts. And Ouch. you know, I mean that jives, you know, with you know the story we talked about in 2005 with Kevin Steen, right? That apparently, you know, Gabe and CM Punk were not always fond of that Kevin, the idea of Kevin Steen wrestling assurance, Kevin Steen felt it was enough of a negative about it that he, even though he didn't want to do this, he wrestled in a singlet. So it makes sense that, you know, Kevin, Chris here was another guy that did not have a great physique who wrestled in a t-shirt and, um, and, and Gabe obviously makes like sort of tongue in cheek references to this attitude in his commentary during the match later on that we're going to review. Yeah. Ironically, he uses, did you notice, like, when he, he's putting him down, he's doing a lot of the th- same things he talked about, like, Brian Danielson when he first became champion, like, he's talking about how, oh, he's not for the masses, like, he, he talks about he doesn't have a tan, you know. Right. Well, that, well, that was hilarious. He makes fun of Chris Hero's tan when he's wrestling Brian Danielson. Yeah. I mean, but, 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 I mean, it had to be self-aware, I would think, but who knows? So then comes the next, and this is where a bunch of the threads from 2005 get come in. So for people that remember, or for those who don't, when Brian Danielson returned to Ring of Honor, he wrestles one match, his first match back after months in the UK, He and that's beating Gibson for the world title, and then he misses the next three consecutive Ring of Honor shows. And two of those were the Joe Kobashi double shot, and he missed those because his sister was getting married. But the other one he missed, the first one he missed, was Survival of the Fist 2006, and he missed that because he had been previously booked well before for the Ted Petty Invitational, the one of the big indie... Um, tournaments every year at this point uh we've talked about before how the 2004 tpi which is an iwa mid-south tournament by the way is like a who's who of indie wrestling and the 2005 was pretty stacked as well so hero prior commit decided to work there and he had a second round match against chris hero and um so another thing to remember was ring of honor particularly starting with the joe era was very protective about the world champions not being able to shouldn't lose matches outside of Ring of Honor while they were champion, the the world champions, and that it, it was a bit overstated because when I looked at the results, like guys like Aries and stuff, like they could lose outside of Ring of Honor, but it was usually like do a draw, do a countout, do a disqualification, something like that. And you know, we talked about in 2005 there was that story of James Gibson gets booked for Jersey All Pro. He wins the title after he gets booked. He then tells them he can't lose a match, but that they could do like a schmoz or maybe even like a DQ or something. And Jersey All Pro's like, fuck that. And they make a big public, you know, dispute about it, saying like, it's not fair that this is happening. And so think of all that. So Danielson, he has just become champion of Ring of Honor. And it comes to Pete, I mean, the TBI, IWA Mid-South. In the second round, he's facing Chris Hero. And, you know, Kiro's a regular one of the big stars of IWA Mid-South, and they're setting up a third-round match that's where he's going to turn heel. So they're like, we want Chris Hero to win. And Danielson apparently tells like Ian and Hero, like, I can lose, that's fine, but because of all this, like, it has to be like a DQ or a countout. And 
hero stories that he goes, you know, that's, that's cool. And he thinks about it for a little while and then he decides he has an idea. And he goes back to hero and he goes, how about, I mean, he goes back to Daniels and he goes, how about we do a match where I work over your leg the whole match and then you go for an insecurity. I duck it while I'm holding your bad leg. And then I just immediately cradle you with the bad leg and I get like the flash pin. And he says, Danielson thinks about for a second. It's like, yeah, sure. Okay. But it's funny because Hero, like, like he doesn't really talk about his mindset with that, but there's almost like a little bit of glee in his voice when he's talking about on the Conrad podcast, almost like maybe Hero just saw this opportunity of like, I can get a pin over the world champion of this promotion that doesn't like their world champion to lose. And, you know, they don't really see much in me. So what happens? And it becomes like a minor story because uh, uh, there was even a quote from the Observer at the time where, was, where Dave wrote like, oh, I guess that thing about the world, Ring of Honor World Champion can't lose outside Ring of Honor is over or something like that. And, you know, there was some speculation. I don't think it ever came out publicly. Like, was Gabe unhappy with that and all this stuff? Because here you have the, the one guy like that is famous for not getting booked in Ring of Honor gets to be the one guy who pins the Ring of Honor World Champion. And so... Now we got this third factor, which is the ring of the Philly crowds. We talked about all at the start of the show about how the crowd in, you know, for the punk show, the crowd for Joe versus Gavashi that, you know, while he had booked for, like you met, mentioned Matt earlier for the upcoming anniversary show, there was some thought apparently that Gabe was thinking about if this doesn't start turning around soon, Philly might have to go the way of Boston where we put this market on hold for a long time. And so the CZW thing gave them this reason to, oh, we have to move the show around. We can do this kind of co-promotion. How about we have this hook where, and, and so this is a key thing. Chris Hero says when Gabe called him up or got in contact with him, he presented it as it was just a one-off. Like, you know, we're not going to be booking you anything but for this one match, but would you like to come in? We, we can set up an angle, you know, on, you know, the afternoon show and pre-announce it well before that. And you can do, you can give Danielson his, 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 um, win back and you get this booking out of it. Would you like that? And Hero says yes. So then that the story gets even crazier. It gets really bizarre. So this might have been at Cage of Death, actually. Um, so the show before the CZW show, at least before the one of, of on this night, Chris Hero does this promo after the match basically challenging Brian's dance. That's when this angle comes. And so here's a recap from the observer. And Matt, this is, this is, this is, gets crazy. Dave writes the angle shot, the CZW show where Chris Hero challenged Brian Danson was not for the next CZW show, but for a match scheduled for the January 14th ring of honor show. Mike Burns, who was booking CZW did the angle on the CZW show to build for the ring of honor show. John Zandig who owned CZW was furious about it, particularly because he wasn't told about it ahead of time. Burns is no longer going to book for CZW. Zandig also had an altercation with Michael Panko stemming from all of this, according to one report, resulting in a loud argument and eventually shoving Pankos down a flight of stairs, although Pankos wasn't hurt as he grabbed the rail on the way down. Pankos does the website as well as lots of the production for CZW, and he's left the company but has an open door to return. So Open door to the staircase? <laughs> no, so, I, sh- I shouldn't joke about that. That sounds fucked up. <laughs> well, so – this is an interesting thing because I, again, I've listened to a lot of shoot interviews with Chris Hero on, um, two, one or two of them, uh, one, at least one of them, Hero says that I believe it's the Conrad one. He says Zandig did not know 
they were going to shoot, even though he owned CZW, he was, again, this Mike Burns was booking it, that Zandig, he claims Zandig did not know here was going to do this angle or cut this promo. And so Zandig is furious afterwards. He's yelling at Hero. He um, fires Mike Burns, the booker of, of CZW, who was apparently the guy who, you know, not initiated this, this, this crossover. And also Hero says it's the guy who brought him back into CZW and then shoves this, and then, but then in, in another shoot interview, one he does with Rob Naylor years earlier, he says that Zandig did know this was all going to happen, but somehow he still got frustrated when it was actually happening. The, the idea that Hero was in some way putting over Ring of Honor by just doing an angle with them. And then Hero also says that as much as he, uh, uh, hilarious a story it would be, the, even though he likes Michael Pankos, that the Michael Pankos story, which I've commonly – I've heard that story a lot – is not true that he did not get chucked down the flight of stairs. So I mean, gossip, folklore, there's a lot going on there. I don't know. What do you think? Do you think Zandig knew? It, I mean, it seems, I mean, you know, wrestling is wrestling. It seems crazy that they wouldn't tell the owner that they're going to promote another company on the show, but I guess, like I said, it is wrestling. I mean, whether he knew or not, the parts of the story that don't, do not change is that he yelled at Chris Hero after the promo and he fired the booker of the company and apparently the guy who ran like the website and did a bunch of production. So clearly it was either, it was one of the stories is true. Either he didn't know it all or um, he did knew, but didn't know how angry it would make him because yeah. what, what we do know, and I think this explains a lot of what we'll cover in the upcoming shows is how CZW side barely acknowledges like apart from one CZW show, they really, from this point on, don't acknowledge this feud, even though it's incredibly hot on the Ring of Honor end. And I think this probably tells you why, is that John Zandig, I think, even though he ends up getting involved on the Ring of Honor end, I don't think he really liked, you know, some aspects of this. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, I'm, you know, I, I'm totally ignorant to the way the business works, but like, from an, as from an outsider's perspective, it seems like something that could have helped CZW a lot, had they, you know, utilized it a little bit more. But, you know, maybe not. <laughs> maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. I think that's very possible and true about most things. But it's just so crazy to think about when you think of like this was a huge angle for Ring of Honor. It got them a ton of praise in the newsletters and everything else. I think Sapolsky has said still to this day it's like one of the things he might be proudest of. When Conrad talks to Hero on the podcast, even Hero says that to this day it's probably like one of the top three things he thinks he's done in his career. You know, it was a huge boon to Ring of Honor. And yet CZW like wanted very little to do with it. And the people that really helped spirit it, Mike Burns – Gets fired for it. <laughs> well, I was, I was going to ask you. So, is is does that does that fire remi- f- being fired remain permanent? Like, is does he come uh, back? Like, I because when you were talking about the booking the, of the shows like that week and like Gabe making a deal about when to do it, you mentioned Mike Burns and that Gabe was talking to Mike Burns, which makes it sound like Mike Burns was back. Well, they might previously book that months ahead of time or with this double date. I'm not. I'm not sure. And you know. I could have dived in even more, but I've done a lot of diving. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's for <laughs> you, the CZW You've done plenty, podcast. yes. I'm leaving some room on the plate for the whoever does the CZW podcast one day. But, um, yes. yeah, that would be interesting to know. I know Mike Burns did steer CZW into – they still have the death matches, but it was a bit more of a – trying to be a bit more like the Ring of Honor's The World Direction, bring in some guys for the undercard, you know, guys like Super Dragon, Kevin Steen, Excalibur, yeah. stuff like that. Well, I, so I, I'm going to mention this obviously more when the when the, when the – the feud goes gets going and stuff in the match, but like the guys that ROH really used for the CZW feud 
were not like the legacy CZW guys, you know? If anything, a bunch of them were more associated with IWA Mid-South than anything else, right? Yeah, and it's funny. I think Hero might have a lot to do with it because I, I was saying this for the Cage of Death show, but this is a good little note that I learned from the, all this research was that um, for Cage of Death, Hero – I mean Gabe suggested like for the extra two guys for like the Cage of Death blow-off match, like how about we bring in Nick Gage and like Justice Payne or yeah, something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Hero was like – how about Eddie Kingston and Nate Webb instead? Like, like Hero was like thinking. Hero was kind of steering it towards. How about we do it more to like, yeah, like Chikara, Chikara style and stuff. Yeah, man, it would have had a different legacy, especially like with Nick Gage being as popular as he is now. If he had been in that match, it, it absolutely. But even like we'll get to it in a, in a second. Like the wrestlers that come to the ring um, with from CZW with Chris Hero, that was all Chris Hero's idea. And Chris Hero says to their credit, those guys all came and like did it for free they they did the show for free you know the yeah. little ring seconding um i think this so was I, the only only appearance of adam flash as far as i can remember in this feud but yeah yeah i think i think you're right so anyway hero promotes this also a lot on live journal i looked at the live journal stuff because he used to cut promos on like live journal on the message boards and i remember people really remembering them well and maybe i didn't see them all i thought maybe i should include some of that i read them honestly they're pretty tame to this to, to my eyes today i didn't think that they really warned a mention we got so much to go into but i just thought i'd mention it because it's something he references a lot that also really helped build the feud but also i'm wondering like maybe because the internet now like between twitter and social media we're all so much harsher to each other now that like a fake promo on live journal like does not seem nearly as harsh as it did back then because like it's i remember them being like oh shit like heroes laying it down and when i went back and read the one i could find it was like this is fairly tame. Like, yeah, this isn't yeah. that bad. Um, like, I get comments on this worse every week on Twitter. So, um, anyway, so I thought this was an interesting point. So, the, the, you know, the angle gets built up. Hero says Gabe was so happy that when he got to the building, before they even worked the Danielson match this night, Gabe was like, I have to book you at, for one more show, like somewhere. I don't know when it's going to be, but I have to give you like some kind of make good because this has gone so well. Like he says, Gabe was so happy with like the live journal stuff and obviously the attendance and the buzz that he, Hero has said like, and Gabe agreed because there's a shoot interview actually where Gabe and Hero do it together. It's mostly them watching matches, but they do talk about this. Um, you know, Hero said like, even after this night, it, Gabe did not yet like get hero as a talent like he still did not buy into him as being like a great talent but he saw how successful this angle was and then was going to go go with it but like so it was almost like i want to give you another book because you've done such a good job with this but it was still even then almost like i'm not committed to booking you long term because i still don't really you know there's this but and then we'll get to it later there becomes a point where gabe, where gabe does get it and then it's like okay this guy's going to stick around but um a couple more points before we kind of get to the match. Finally, uh, a couple of things that I thought were really interesting was um, one thing was, and, and I always thought this, and then this was one of the things that should have used like where they echoed my thoughts. Gabe and hero both talking about this, like all of this ended up being the best thing that could have happened to Chris hero because Gabe pointed this out. And I completely agree. If hero had just been put in like a random undercard thing, like earlier in ring of honor, it would have not had the impact of this. Like by a weird unintended consequence is by having all this controversy, all these way, chain of events that happened. And by hero not being booked for so long, that became this weird, like sore thumb. Like 
it, it, it creates such a clamor for Chris Hero that, that it created this moment that would have been far bigger if just like in 2004, 2003, they just started randomly booking Chris Hero. Like, it, like, and they both agree, like it worked out way better this way than any other way. And, uh, here, Gabe is also said from his his perspective that like he says, oh, people can go back and say, oh, Chris Hero was better than this guy and this guy and this guy that were on some of these undercards in, in like 2004, 2005 or, or, you know, whatever. But he was saying, like, you have to understand all those guys were in, in spots that were for them, you know, and that, you know, there, he, Gabe's argument was whether you want to buy into it or not was there just wasn't the right spot for him until now. And then with Punk gone. And me needing to try things to like switch things up and, and um, you know, draw in Philly. Now the spot was open. So either way, finally, the last thing, um, I think I pinpointed Matt the exact day that Gabe Sapolsky decided to turn the CZW angle into a, the, uh, into uh, the CZW angle. Yeah. Yeah. Until, until one off thing, because on one shoot interview, um, Gabe goes out of his way to say, I know the exact moment I decided that um, I was going to make this into more than just like a one-off, which was I was at a concert by the band High on Fire. He says, I was thinking to myself during the concert uh, about the booking, and I was going, this has gone so well. He goes, why am I being an idiot? I just need to run with this. And and and, and, and so, I, Matt, this is how much of a dork I was today. I went and I looked up. High on Fire's concert dates for early to late 2005 and early 2006. <laughs> at setlist.com or whatever? Yeah, setlist.fm. Yeah. And I don't know if they're complete, but High on Fire, before this show, so it couldn't have been before this show, they worked, they did, um, worked, they're not wrestlers. They did San Francisco and West Hollywood, which Gabe wouldn't have gone to. They did um, Dallas, Texas. Gay wouldn't have gone to Athens, Georgia. Gay wouldn't have gone to February 1st. They did Baltimore. I don't think Gay would have gone there. February 2nd, they did Philadelphia at the First Unitarian Church. And February 3rd, they did the uh, uh, Bowery Ballroom in New York. So to me, it has to have been either February 2nd or February 3rd. The interesting thing about that is they do the follow-up angle the week before. Because on the next show we cover, Tag Wars, which is late January, they do another angle where Chris Hero and Necro Butcher buy tickets to the show and kind of cause a ruckus. But yet Gabe says when he decided to make this a, a, a actual, like, legit feud, was got to be either February 2nd or February 3rd. So I don't know if anyone's ever thought of that before except me or if anyone cares about that except me, but I just went that deep. And that geeky to try and figure that out. But anyway, finally, bravo, um, Trevor, bravo for this entire thing. That that's that's quite the button though. The the the, the investigative reporting. So anyway, finally we can go back and actually cover this goddamn thing. We cut we when we go back to the DVD, we cut to Chris Hero making his way through the crowd with people from CCW, Adam Flash, referee Bryce Remsburg, Nate Webb, and the Necro Butcher and Tall. All in CZW t-shirts, some of the ugliest t-shirts you will ever see, because if you have never seen the CZW t-shirt of this era, they are a color which I can only describe as neon yellow piss. They are, <laughs> they, they are horrific. I think Hero there's, there's, like, there's some booger about, in there too, certain certain shade of booger. They've talked, I mean, Hero's like gleefully talked about how ugly they are. Um, 
I, Hero has also said he wants Super Dragon to be there, and he would have been there, except Super Dragon had an early afternoon flight after the CZW show, so he just had to go home. But otherwise, he would have been here too, apparently. Um, you can actually see Hero, and this is a great little touch Hero's talked about. He wanted little touches like this just to help suspend disbelief. So not only do they come in through the crowd, you can literally see Hero had like a burned CD to the Ring of Honor sound guy and say, play this as the CCW theme. So I just love that idea. Like they're trying to make it seem like he's just completely, you know, on his own. They start playing the CZW theme. We get a brief, loud Chris Hero chant followed by an equally loud fuck you Hero chant. The CCW theme plays as Hero and friends walk through the crowd to the ring. Necro Butcher punches himself in the head over and over and opens himself up hard way, causing some fans to start chanting for the Necro Butcher. Hero gets on the mic. He calls out all the stupid sons of bitches who said he'd never wrestle in the ring of honor. Hero introduces the Necro Butcher, which gets a, another chant for Necro. Hero's drawing big heat here, getting a shut the fuck up chant as he compares Gabe Sapolsky by name to a dictator. I believe the live report says he compared him to Hitler. He I didn't. Did. No, he, he says that. Yeah, I heard it. He said, he said, uh, I said, elitist dictatorship on par with Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany. That is the exact <laughs> word that he said, which is, I feel like today comparing a Jewish booker to Hitler would probably cause some issues. But in 2006, it was just fun, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it would make him really popular with a certain subset of people. <laughs> but uh, um, tonight, Chris Hero, he says, tonight, Chris Hero, the wrestler that was never good enough for Ring of Honor, wins their title, takes it to CCW, and throws it in the goddamn trash. Hero tries to keep going when Danielson's music starts and interrupts him. And it leads, I, I love even this little touch at the end where as the music starts, Hero says one last thing on the mic as Danielson's theme is going, where he goes, I'm not finished here. So I love, they, you know, they're really trying to make it like it's not quite cooperative here. And, um, yeah, that brings us to the match. The Ring of Honor World Title match. Brian Danielson, as I spill something, successfully de- defends his title, defeating Chris Hero, scored to the ring by all those guys I mentioned, via submission in 29 minutes, sec- six seconds, with the cross-haste chicken wing. Now, Matt, I want you to have first go on this review, because good lord, I've talked enough and it's your turn. But yeah, also, take, take a sip of water, dude. There, There is a quote from De- Brian's book about this match, and you usually are the one that reads them. So I don't know if you want to save that to the start of the of the review or the end, but either way, I mean, go wild. What do you think? <laughs> I mean, this was a very long... I mean, it, this is why the show was called Hell Freezes Over, was this match, so... I'll, um, I'll save the Danielson quote for after our reviews. Okay. Um, but... I um I hope the thing that you spilled wasn't the beans. Um, but um, so this is the first match in a while where Danielson gets to be a full babyface. Although he's still he's not like the babyface version that he was at the beginning of his title reign, where he was just like white meat babyface. He, he was still like a jerk, but he had the crowd on his side. He didn't taunt them or anything like that. Um, and you know it's weird. The first move in the match, I don't think I've ever seen this before in a ROH title match was a full Nelson, which is weird enough because, you know, it's weird to see a guy get a full Nelson on someone so much taller than him. But also, it's just a weird way to start a match. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of the early part of the match is Hero stalling. He's outside of the ring for a long time, um, right in Green Lantern fans' face to the point where the crowd chants, hit Green Lantern, and Hero gets in his face. And then the crowd starts chanting, fuck him up, Lantern, fuck him up, which makes Necro Butcher go, oh, for the love of God. <laughs> which is adorable. Yeah, a reasonable reaction to that. And it's a, it's a lot of stalling. Um, and Gabe, you know, he's in and out on commentary. Like we said before, he asks if Hero's ever lifted a weight or seen a tanning bed. 
um, which is, again, ironic given his opponent. I mean, Danielson lifts weights, but he is very famously not tan, especially during this era. Yeah. Um, he, Gabe also describes the, quote, riot-like scene from CZW earlier in the day. So I can only imagine – you watched it, but when Gabe Sapolsky calls something a riot, I imagine that it's two guys in a crowd um, throwing worked punches at each other. Um, but It was a few wrestlers doing a run-in and then getting chased to outside the building by a few other wrestlers. A classic ROH-style riot. Um, yeah. But, you know, they're fighting around ringside, all that stuff, and – you know, a lot of the match involves Gabe, you know, making fun of um, CZW. Uh, he calls Necro Butcher style garbage style. Meanwhile, I thought we had already established that ROH stands for Ring of Hardcore. I feel like Mick Foley <laughs> would not be happy to hear Gabe Spolsky talking about garbage <laughs> wrestling. Um, but, um, you know, there's one fun sequence where Danielson comes back on the floor by just repeating, repeatedly slapping Hero with his right hand and going back to the ring. Um, the interesting thing about the match, though, is it's long. It's like almost a half hour, and a lot of it is spent on the mat. Um, it's it's not like smooth, like you know, chain wrestling, like you'd see some guys do. It's like a struggle. Like the, you know, they like Danielson keeps trying to do holds, and and Hero keeps blocking it, but Danielson keeps going back to it. And you know, it's it's interesting to watch. The crowd though isn't super impressed by it. Hero starts targeting Danielson's arm, and he really focuses on Danielson's arm a lot, and the match slows down a lot in the middle. You know, it definitely tells a story, but the crowd, I think there is a point where there's a lull because it's just like, huh, well, we didn't see this coming. Like, this is like so this big dramatic thing, and then they're just like really on the mat for a long time with Hero getting like hammer locks and different things, and, and, and Danielson tries to do a cattle mutilation and Hero avoids it and hits what Prezak calls a snap forearm STO, which is an interesting uh, thing to do. And then, you know, Hero does this thing where he teases big moves, but like he'll tease like a roaring forearm, but instead, instead hit a quote, roaring eye poke. Um, <laughs> you know, does, does the, ha- his move is the, the hangman's clutch, which is like sort of like a, sort of like an STF cravat combo, but he also c- captures the arm. Um, does the, uh, uh, Danielson at one point blocks a hero's welcome and turns it into a chicken wing. Uh, oh, excuse me. Um, excuse me. He blocks a hero's welcome, but a hero blocks a chicken wing and turns it into a suplex. Um, hero goes for a top rope double stomp and Danielson moves and hits a knockout forearm and hero kicks out of that. So they are definitely getting, as the match goes on, this is at the point where like you're talking about like the 25, 26 minute mark. After spending like a long time on the mat, Danielson gets the cattle mutilation, and the crowd chants for Hero to tap. But Hero rolls out, and makes the ropes, and they they struggle to the top rope, and Danielson gets head butted off, um, and he goes for a backflip, but Danielson moves, and Hero hits a couple of cravat busters, which is a really cool move. I love that move, and I think you know I hadn't seen a lot of Hero before this. Um, a little bit, but I hadn't seen the cravat buster before when I first saw this match, and I, I thought that was like one of the cooler things in the match. Um, after a few of Hero's like Hangman's clutch attempts, this time, like really late in the match, the crowd finally pops forward, and Danielson makes the ropes, and eventually the match ends with um, 
Daniel Sid avoiding another hero's welcome, turning into a, t- a tiger suplex, getting a two count, and then holding on and getting the chicken wing and causing Hero to tap out. Which is interesting because Hero tapped out to that arm submission, even though he was the one working on the arm the whole match. Um, but it was just it was just a strange match because it was kind of incongruent with what you would have expected, but it also really shows that it would definitely was planned to be a one night thing because they would not have worked the beginning of a feud to be like this, where hero was just like on the mat, the whole match. I, you know, I don't know what they were going for. I guess the story they told was good in a way. And I think it did get exciting down the stretch. Um, but I remember being pretty disappointed with this at the time. I think it's better now than it seemed then. I'm like, I think it's a good match, like a, a definitely a good match, but it's it was weird playing of the expectations game, I think, which Danielson will get into in his uh, in his book excerpt that I'll read. And I agree with what he says, although I think I like the match more than Danielson says. I also think that maybe it plays better now than it did when it happened. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. Um, so, yeah, I'll say I'll try not to go too in it because I'll say for for your quote, but like, you know, Danielson does view this match as his a big failure in his run. I think it's a little harsh, but like you, I do agree with the complaints that we'll be talking about. Um, I think this is a strange example of two uh, two of the smartest wrestlers of their generation not listening to the fans and not anticipating what they wanted, which, which is bizarre. Cause again, I think these, I think hero and Danielson are two of the smartest wrestlers, you know, of their era, just guys that are very thoughtful. I could listen to them talk about wrestling all day. Like just, um, you know, from the minute hero appears, it's clear that ring of honor has something special with the CZW thing. Like the yeah. second he appears in the crowd. Yeah. That, that's the one thing I forgot to mention. Like, the atmosphere just went it got insane when Hero first showed up. Like like and, and all the CZW guys were there. Like the intensity and the electricity in that crowd was amazing. And it's it was shocking to me live, like how it dissipated as the match got going. Like that's not a good sign. Yeah, and also I think Hero on one shoot said that like there was one bleacher that had the CZW fans at the show. I not not not, like, not on the show, no. Yeah, I I was wondering if did Hero confuse that. Yeah, yeah. Because... At, the, at the next two shows there were. Yeah, but, but um, you can tell there are some hero fans, but it's mostly Ring of Honor fans here. Um, you know, they're just into this match that they the, – the crowd's alive for this in a way that they rarely have been into selling in Ring of Honor history. And they've been into a lot of things, but not quite like this. They're into hitting hero. They're into cheering Danielson as like the home promotion savior. They clearly think this is something special. They're red hot. They want hero to get his ass kicked, and – these two work a nearly half hour long, mostly mat based technical wrestling match. And um, I would say like rereading Danielson's book passage before rewatching this match, like you, I think you saying the expectations game. I think that's a perfect way to say it because he is so harsh on this match in some ways that like I was pleasantly surprised. I still think this is probably one of the worst matches of Danielson's title reign so far, along with the Steve Creo match, but worst in Danielson's title reign so far means I would put this like just a little bit under four stars, like three and three quarters. So that's still really good, but they had the crowd and the aura to have something special. And yeah, like these two should have just gone full tilt and, and, and it had some hate and, you know, Danielson's being his cheeky heel 
And I actually liked the stalling at first because uh, it was fun crowd interaction with Hero. And, and Hero's really good about being a heel during this match throughout being like a cocky, arrogant heel. But then the work of the match, it's just a lot of like working the arm, like you mentioned. And, and I think I talked about this earlier with Daniels. I feel like Danielson did what, again, what happens a lot, which is he knew Hero was in at this point for one night. And that hero was going to lose. So Danielson being a nice guy, I feel like he gave hero a lot of the match. And when he won, it felt kind of abrupt. Like it's like hero hits all this, the, his big moves near the end, a bunch of them. And then Danielson just does like a couple moves quick, like a tiger suplex. And then goes for the, the cross chicken wing. And it's like, it's very much one of those classic kind of, I let you have most of the match. And then when it's time to go home, I'll just wrap it up in a couple moves. And it, and it yeah. felt very abrupt. And also, a lot of the mat work in the match was like Hero sort of like laying on the mat in like a hammerlock or something. Like it was like it was not like very like, and it wasn't like an a fast move. Like it wasn't a lot of like movement even in the mat wrestling. It was a lot of like sitting on the mat in a in a in an arm submission. Yeah, and uh, I would say it's very good because. Like it is well done technical wrestling. These guys are very good technical wrestlers. They don't do anything wrong, and the aura is still like I would say they never completely lose the crowd. But like you said, I feel like they, this crowd starts out super hot, and it gets progressively less hot throughout the entire half hour. And uh, like until said, until the final few big moves. See, I thought like even then, like they did start getting up for a little bit for the big moves, but I felt like even the final minutes where they were starting to pick up the action more, the crowd was still like getting more dead until like right near the end, which I thought also point showed me it wasn't just how they worked the match, which I think is a big play into that. But also, I think this crowd just it's hard to sustain that kind of high emotion for 30 minutes. I think no matter what they did. This wasn't the time to have a 30-minute match. I, I feel like they should have hit this crowd hard with, like, a 15-minute brawl or just toe-to-toe war. And so they gave them this half an hour more reserved, more sedate technical wrestling match. That's and, true. That's true, although they do have some pretty big, long, intense brawls later on in the CZW feud that do hold the crowd's attention. But, of course, those involve, like, lots of different people, so that's part of it also. Yeah. It's just – um. Even like with Danielson, like, 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 I think you make a good point with like Danielson, like sometimes just lying on the mat, taking holds because like Danielson gets control for a lot of the match, but it's never controlled in a way where you're like really building to some big triumphant comeback for Danielson, which again, this, the, the atmosphere of the crowd, this match feels like it's made for this huge triumphant comeback. Like, I really feel like what the crowd wanted to see most in this match was Chris Hero get his ass kicked. And I feel like this match doesn't have that much Chris Hero getting his ass kicked, which is kind of ironic because a lot of Danielson's title ring has been about him just like brutalizing his opponents and kicking their asses and like dominating them. And this match is the match where more than any other, the crowd I feel like is just begging for that. And again, I think my assumption would be because Danielson's just trying to be generous, knowing that Kiro's not coming back. But of course, now we know he is. He just gives him a lot and just lets him kind of control it. And yeah, so it, it, it's a good match if you can separate yourself, but it's hard to separate from the disappointment. I, I feel like, you know what this match kind of reminds me of, Matt, is the Alex Shelley-Austin Aries match from uh, Manhattan Man, which we both agreed was very good, but but we also thought the crowd really was clearly super hot for that and wanted that to be a great match, and I think both these matches are examples where, like, 
there's if I'm going to use a baseball analogy for once instead of a food analogy, there's like a fastball right down the middle that any good hitter should be able to hit for a home run. And you have a great hitter here. And in both of these matches, they just hit a double. And it's like there's nothing wrong with a double. But like, man, it was so clearly in a position for them to do something special here. And and they just they don't. And, and it's again, it's just more than being disappointed. It's puzzling that they did that they didn't pick up on what the crowd wanted. Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting. And I guess that is a good as, as good a transition as any to what Danielson wrote. And I'll read it right now. So this is quoting Brian Danielson from the book Yes, My Improbable Journey to the Main Event of WrestleMania. Um Daniel Bryan with Craig Tello. Um all right. Ring of Honor opened up 2006 with a hot interpromotional feud with a company called Combat Zone Wrestling, CZW. Each organization had its own passionate fan base, which really contributed to the success of the rivalry. CZW was known for extremely violent wrestling that incorporated a great many weapons in matches. A great many. (laughs) Um, By this point, using things like tables and chairs was commonplace in mainstream wrestling. CZW took things a step further. Instead of just putting somebody through a table, they would put somebody through a barbed wire table that was on fire. They would hit people not only with chairs, but with things like long fluorescent light tubes that shattered on impact. I even saw a guy turn on a weed whacker and use it on his opponent. Their fans loved it. Most (laughs) of our fans, however, thought it was garbage wrestling and that the CZW wrestlers were vastly inferior to the regulars of Ring of Honor. On the flip side, a lot of the CZW fans found technical wrestlers like me boring, and they didn't like what they perceived to be Ring of Honor's elitist attitude. With both companies based in Philadelphia, it was a perfect rivalry. It started off with some CZW wrestlers invading an ROH show, and Chris Hero, one of their promotion's top performers, challenging me for the ROH title. In return, we invaded a CZW event when we were running a show across town the same night, the first time I'd ever been in the famed ECW arena in downtown Philadelphia. A bunch of wild brawls broke out, including one in which ROH wrestler BJ Whitmer had a sheet of paper stapled to his forehead. The fans of each company were white-hot for the feud, leading to my match with Hero for the ROH championship in Philadelphia on January 14th. One of the hardest hitting th- the hardest things in wrestling is getting the fans to care. I've had a lot of good technically sound matches in which nobody cared because there was nothing at stake. Just another match where it didn't matter who won or who lost. This wasn't the case with me and Hero at Hell Freezes Over. We had a split crowd. Half CZW fans, half ROH fans. Just note that's not actually true on this show, but it's fine. Close enough. Um who were excited as hell for this match and couldn't wait to cheer on their respective guys. You could absolutely feel the electricity during our entrances. That part is true. We started, When we started off wrestling, trying to prove who was the better wrestler, the crowd was really into it. But then we kept wrestling. For almost 30 minutes. The more we wrestled, the more the crowd became disinterested. The fans wanted a fight, and what ended up being a long scientific wrestling match should have been a hate-filled brawl. You need to know when to wrestle and when to fight. That night in January 2006 was a time when I chose the wrong option. I'd say that match was my biggest failure as Ring of Honor champion. 
Um, I guess we'll find out if that's true. I know there's a little bit of timeline fudging there, but um, yeah. for the most part, I think his analysis of the match was was pretty much what happened. Yeah, I mean, he's a little harsh on, on himself, but but and and the match, but yeah, he is he is right. Like it, it goes to show. You, like I think Danielson by this point was one of, if not the greatest wrestler in the world. I think that was a true boast. But even he could make the wrong decision. You know, he was still a young guy, and people, even the people that are great at something, can occasionally make the wrong decision. And I, yeah, he misread the moment. So, um. After the match, uh, Gabe says this is the last time where he's ever going to have to hear Chris Hero's name, which, of course, is not true. Then, in an unintentionally hilarious moment, after spending a whole match burying Hero and the CZW, CZW guys at ringside on commentary, Gabe thanks CZW and says it was great cooperating with them on a doubleheader and calls them a great organization. <laughs> so I love that, like, it's very much out of character Gabe, like, you know, like, fuck this guy, go, go back, whatever that's like. Thank you, CCW, for, for doing this, for, you know, working the afternoon. You, you're great guys. Uh, <laughs> so then, uh, the embassy music hits and Nana hits the ring while Danielson is still selling. Nana goes for, um, goes for full million dollar man here. He offers Danielson a check for the ring of honor title. Uh, Danielson wants to know how much he's willing to pay for it. Nana says something and Danielson says, he saw that the check's currency is Ghana money, and the money in Ghana ain't worth shit, so he's afraid he's going to have to decline Nana's offer. Nana slaps Danielson and grabs Nana when Jimmy Rave and Alex Shelley run to the ring and attack Brian. Rave goes to hit greetings from Ghana, but Shelley stops him, getting on the mic, saying he thinks he has Danielson's kryptonite. He then hits the slice bread number two on Brian, and then he does Spanky's little dance, so playing up that history. He tells Brian to take the, that... Um, to, he, said, he tells Brian to take that back to the WWF developmental territory in 1998, pal. Didn't, did, Dan, didn't Danielson just beat Spanky like a year ago? I don't know if it's really yeah. like his kryptonite, but hey. Yeah, exactly. Um, then the embassy pose and celebrating the ring to end the show. So a couple things here. First off, this was again another big reset of the embassy just lost a feud, but clearly this night between the, their tag match earlier and this angle is about, and what we're going to see on the next show is about like full bore, like rehabbing the embassy and making them big players for the next few months and having Danielson feud with them and kind of his first baby face feud as champion. And um, although I guess you could say this hero match, like you said earlier is baby face, but wasn't really known to be a feud yet. And the other thing, I think this goes again, Matt to your, I mean, we know this, but it's another further proof that this was really only going to be a one-off at first because they like Hero and the other CCW guys like leave immediately with no fuss. They just disappear immediately after the end of the match, and then the embassy thing starts immediately. So it was almost like they were thinking like, okay, CCW thing is done, and since we're not going to follow up on this, like let's use this moment to build like what we are going to keep doing, which is like the embassy stuff. It's because I have I have a feeling if they knew this was CCW feud was going to keep going, they would have just had them quietly disappear without like, without a whimper. Definitely, definitely, after. definitely not. Like, yeah, I mean, the embassy thing, like, it was well done, but like, you can clearly tell, like, oh, this does not have the interest that the CCW stuff has. So it makes sense that that to bring back the CCW guys and put more emphasis on that because the embassy stuff just felt pretty secondary in comparison. Yeah. So. That is Hell Freezes Over. That was a very noteworthy show. And obviously, it's just the start. 
of one of the greatest storylines, feuds, whatever, in Ring of Honor history. And it was all unintended and it all started because of a whole bunch of things, you know, because Ring of Honor, Gabe Sapolsky saw nothing in this guy, because Brian Danielson had a booking that he made way before probably he knew he was going to be a world champion because Chris Hero talked Danielson into doing a finish that normally they wouldn't allow because Ring of Honor, you know, didn't wasn't drawing a Philly like they thought they would because CZW and them booked the same time slot together and then had to work out a deal like so many different things had to fall into place for this to happen. Like it's kind of crazy. Yeah, I mean, that's often the best stuff that happens in, in wrestling and in life, right? When, when just there's kismet and like things fall into place. Um, yeah, it's super interesting. And this show was super interesting. Like I, there was, um, there was disappointing stuff on it. There was mediocre stuff on it. There was weird stuff on it, but there was also a lot of really good stuff. There was a match I absolutely loved. There was another match that I thought was just like so much fun. There was another, there were a couple other pretty good undercard matches. Um, the main event is, Certainly a fascinating beginning, even if it was disappointing in its way. So, you know, I find this to be a super compelling show, all in all, and a quite a way to start the year. Yeah, I mean, even though I didn't like the AJ Sayamich quite as much as you, I still liked it quite a bit. BJ Joe's really good. That undercard embassy tag is really is pretty darn, I mean, not special, but fairly good. And the main event is a good match. And yeah, it is a piece of independent wrestling history. And, uh, it, like, you should, you should watch it. Even if, even if there weren't other really good matches on the show, which there are, I mean, it's worth it because this is a huge part, I would say, of the history of U.S. independent wrestling. It's, you know, to this day, considered by the people involved as, like, one of the best angles in the history of the promotion, if not the best. It's one of the and best it, American wrestling angles of the past 20 years. Period. And it really all starts here without them even really knowing it. And that atmosphere, even if they do squander it a little bit, is something really fascinating and entertaining to see too. So yep. definite recommended show to start the year. And that brings us to our plug. So as usual, um, through the years at gmail.com, T H R O H is how you spell it. That is our email address. We have a thread on the pro wrestling only plugs forum. Twitter, I'm at Trevor Dame. Matt is at Mayor MGF. Um, at the time of uh, us we're recording this, we have just recorded an episode of the Five Star Match Game with Joe Gagne and as uh, the host, of course, and our good friend Justin Shapiro. Uh, I imagine by the time we put out this episode, Joe will have not released that yet, but it'll probably be within days after you this comes out. So. Check that out when it does come out. You know, it was a lot of fun as usual. And, uh, yeah, so next time we will be covering the second show of 2006. We will be covering Tag Wars 2006, which is the second annual trios tournament. Um, the main event, which, uh, is the tag titles get defended with Strong and Aries against Danielson and Jay Lethal. And I think that show also has Low Key and Christopher Daniels. So like a lot of stuff on that show too, actually. And it also has the the second CZW angle, which I guess is technically, you know, in some ways the start of something more. So a lot of, there'll be a lot to talk about on that show, and this was fun, and it's great to be in 2006. It's going to be a huge year, or for us, multiple years. So until next time, have a good time. Have a great time.